And uh, I actually started Pillars of Eternity with four stats, four okay. attributes, sorry. And people were really mad about it because mm. it's not six. Because <laughs> it's not six. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran RPG designer Josh Sawyer, best known for his work on Icewind Dale, Fallout New Vegas, and Pillars of Eternity. This episode was recorded March 24th, 2018, and was engineered by Michael Hermes. next game then i guess okay so that was um that was uh fr6 mm-hmm. uh also i called it the black hound although fergus hated that title okay um but it was uh it was a also it was known internally as jefferson because you used names of presidents oh, as right. uh, code right. names van buren yeah van buren came after that which is yeah. fall three but um oh was it in sequential is that yes idea? yeah okay. just in in order of them becoming presidents right okay so uh Jeff, uh, yeah, so so Blackhound was using our own internal tech that we had developed, um, and it was a 3D game, but it had baked light maps um, because that was a very important thing. When we looked at Neverwinter Nights, we were like, that's really cool, but, you know, they're losing the beautiful lighting, um, and we wanted to do this, you know, radiosity-based lighting and all this stuff to make the levels really feel as, as rich and beautiful as we could make them. Um, and... For my part, I just was a psychotic person. Like, um, you know, like, this game is going to be bigger than BG2. And, like, I, I, wrote, I wrote 1,600 pages of design documentation for The Black Hound. Wow. Um, was there, I mean... It was uh, just my area designs, my yeah. character designs, but how to interpret D&D rules in 3.0 and, like, all this crazy stuff. What was the internal... Um, what's the right term? I want to say, like, culture or atmosphere. Or, like, what was your guys's? feelings internally about like you guys and Bioware and like, you know, uh, the public's perception of like who was responsible for what or like, like, well, like was, I guess what I'm saying is like, was, did you guys have like a, you wanted to do something that like eclipsed Baldur's Gate or like, yeah, what? I would say. And I mean, like, this is such a bratty attitude to, to have, but uh-huh. like I got as a, as a hardcore second edition D and D player, like I think Bioware handled the forgotten realms in a totally fine fashion. Right. Um, I was really frustrated by how a lot of the rules were implemented in okay. Baldur's Gate. Um, like, how so? Um, There's a lot of stuff that was either implemented incorrectly or the manual said it was implemented and it wasn't. Okay. Um, for example, uh, I remember selecting Xan mm-hmm. instead of Dynahir here mm-hmm. uh, for my spellcaster in the party mm-hmm. because I wanted to go fight the Sirens mm-hmm. on the coast and Xan, being an elf enchanter, mm-hmm. should... <laughs> have had 90% resistance to sleep and charm. Yeah, okay. And he should have, as an enchanter, had a plus two bonus to saving throw versus charm and enchantment spells. Right. So I have him stroll on up. You're like, I got this all taken care of. And he gets dire charmed. And I'm like, uh, that's weird. Um, let me try that again. And I reload and he's dire charmed. And then I was like, hmm. And so there are a lot of little things like that where because I was so absurdly, like overly familiar with the rule set, right. I would, I would, Oh, it's a second edition D&D game. Like, the manual says the stuff is all implemented. And so I really would, like, strategize mm-hmm. um, or or do things tactically based off of these assumptions. 
or not assumptions, like things that I believed based on what I saw that were in the game. By the way, the first thing I obsessively did on Icewind Dale was work with our programmer to implement all the racial bonuses okay. from second edition to AD&D. So there are things like that where I was like, I was like, I know we can do like a better job of like, because in my mind, I was just like, D&D is so cool and there's so much tactical stuff. And like, I think we can do so much more with this stuff. Mm. Um, and also I felt like, uh, you know, we could make, you know, get, I, I think at that time also because of Torment, our culture was such that we wanted to make the big, like it was always about like scope and uh, variety. And so mm -hmm. we wanted to make, you know, a billion monsters and like a, a zillion levels. And like, you go to all these cities and they're all different. And like, and we were so, so just as by my own admission, we were so bad about over-documentation. Uh -huh. um, I'm no, there's no way I was a worse offender than Avalon was, but like, but we were, we were both pretty bad. And there, and there were, and there were a lot of other people that were also just awful about it um, because all of us set a bad example for each other. And so we really overwrite our design documents with completely irrelevant. Like it was just, it was bad. Um, but that was like the vibe it was like, we want to like, we want to make the craziest, like most epic D and D game that, and in my mind, I'm like, we're going to get, all these classes in and like all these cool spells, including the craziest ones that take a million years to implement. But I don't understand that because I'm still really a junior designer, even <laughs> though I've been made lead of this project. Right. And um, and it was really just driven forward by my like, you know, insane passion for for trying to make this thing. And um, scope wise, it was absolutely ridiculous. Like the tech was there and like we had we had a lot of cool gameplay features and things like that. But how did you get made lead? I mean, did you just like pursue it? Yeah, I just said Fergus make me lead on this project. Yeah, okay. like, like, <laughs> he was like, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, and yeah, just kind of got carried away. But that got interrupted. So that got interrupted for Icewind Dale too. Okay. And um, so I will I will take a little detour here to say that one of the the most like beloved in my memory things about my time at Black Isle is that, um, and I took it for granted at the time, I assumed that all across the game industry, like every company had artists as good as these folks, mm -hmm. but like we had Justin Sweet, Vance Kovacs, Chris Applehans, Kevin Llewellyn, Jason Manley, um, Andrew Jones, just these, uh, I mean, the other folks that I, I can't even remember, but like all these phenomenal painters mm -hmm. and, um, having them there to literally illustrate like my ideas i was just like oh my god this is the best yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you know vance kovacs did all the the portraits for the companions that i conceived for the black hound and I was yeah. like, this is incredible and um yeah i don't know i just had to take that detour because then yeah like later on i was like wow that was such a kind because they've all gone on to do to like really things. incredible things yeah. um and i just and I think also because my father's an artist, I was just like, well, yeah, there's a great yeah. artist all under every rock. Um, <laughs> so easy, yeah. Yeah, um, but so so the Black Hound got interrupted because Interplay got into a lot of financial trouble. Okay. And uh, they needed something to come out fast. Okay. Um, and so I remember, so we had another project going on. Like I was, you know, kind of jerking off writing documents for, you know, a year and a half or whatever. Uh -huh. And then on the other side of the builder or the other side of the division, you know, they were working on Torn, okay. which was a, you know, a game that most people don't even remember was ever in, develop, but, uh, in development, but we were making uh, an RPG in the Lithtech engine. Okay. Which at that time was not suited to doing that at all. <laughs> And uh, that didn't go super well. And it was a lot of time and a lot of resources and a lot of frustration. And when money got tight for Interplay, 
uh, you know, Ferg, I remember Fergus brought me into an office with Darren Monahan and Chris Parker and uh, Steve Bacchus. And he said, okay, here's the deal. We're gonna cancel Torn tomorrow. We're gonna lay off five people, which Black Isle had never had a layoff. Ever, wow. No, and he said, yeah, we're gonna lay off five, I think it was five people. Um, a few of whom were very good friends of mine. Mm. Um, and so this is my first experience with that. And yeah. then he said, we're gonna start working on Icewind Dale 2. Okay. Needs to be ready in four months. Wow. wow. And I said, that is impossible. I'm sorry, Fergus, that's impossible. <laughs> or he said, he said, what do you think? I remember him specifically saying, what do you think? And I said, that is never gonna happen. That is impossible. Like I said, the even even I being very stupid in many ways at that time knew that the time required to make an area. I was like, I- Had there been, this was a completely new project? Completely new project, yeah. I spent too. Like it hadn't been really discussed prior to that. I mean, okay. in, in anything more than abstract, like, oh, we could make a sequel. And um, yeah, I've heard some aggressive schedules, but that's, that's and I was like, kind I, of... I said, I, I, I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> for, well, and he also, and he talked to me and, and Steve Bacchus, and he said, you know, I need you to write up a, a story outline, uh, outline the major characters and an area list within 48 hours. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I'm like, dude, I mean, I can, I can do that. Um, yeah. Or we can do that. I don't know how good it's going to be, but like I think the bigger thing here is it doesn't matter how many people you put on this project; it's not right. being done in four months. Yeah. Like I, and although Fer, that, Fergus that, will deny, but I will continually contradict him that he did not say four months. But that's that is what it was from the beginning. Okay. Um, and and I I went home and I started writing things up and I talked to Steve Bacchus, who is another one. He had also worked really extensively on the first Icewind Dale and Hard Winter and Trials of Lure Master, <coughs> and uh, a great designer. And um, we got that story outlined down in those characters in the area list and it came back in, the layoffs happened and they were like, all right, you know, Josh has this list of stuff and we're gonna start dividing these areas up and we're just gonna start working on them. Cause our pipelines were really solid. Sure. And they're like, just start cranking them out. I'm yeah. like, okie doke. Yeah. And um, Steve left a little while after that cause he was like, I do not want to crunch on this. Like this is not, so were you, I don't want to speak for him, but like he, you know. Were you really trying to do it in four months at that point? Well, here's the thing. There was basically this ongoing argument between uh, me and Fergus about like, when is this game really gonna come out? Right. And there were certain things that I said, I thought we should try to do to increase the appeal of it. Because that, because at that point, the Infinity Engine games, or the Infinity Engine was getting a little long in the tooth. Right. Bioware was making Neverwinter Nights, which looked sure. you know, yeah, uh, yeah. amazing compared to, to, well, I mean, there's always going to be the appeal of 2D, 2D art, but like, 3D, right? but like, wow, I mean, it was the hot new thing. It was the hot new thing. Yeah. And, and I'm like, and it was third edition. And so I was like, Fergus, I think we should try to convert to third edition. And I've outlined the steps required to do that. And I want to talk to programming about getting estimates for what would really be required for that. And he's like, well, but this has to ship in this amount of time. I'm like, Okay, dude, this is not going to happen. Like, were they I'm, trying to hit, were they trying to get out before Neverwinter or like for Christmas? No, like, it was, was it was arbitrary? yeah, it was it was a financial deadline okay. more than anything else. Okay. Um, okay. As 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 I remember it. Yeah. And again, okay. for guys, can feel free to tell me again that I'm wrong. Right. Um, and I'll say I disagree. <laughs> anyway, um, so it you know it went past four months, and then we did wind up doing a partial three E conversion. Um, okay. But I was pretty happy with. It. I mean, we a actually did what? Oh, oh, third, third edition, edition conversion. Like I thought we, you said three D. No, I was like, what? <laughs> Whoa. but we had um, like we had third edition multi classing. You could uh, have up to four classes on a character. 
But um, did you originally try to do it in four months and you just missed that? No, well, I, I guess this is going to get we, fuzzy. We, we, we tried to do the areas as quickly as yeah, we could. Yeah, it was just on not, a compressed and it, just, it, didn't it wasn't work. possible. Okay. And it slipped to nine months and okay. then it slipped to 10. And so, but we, we got Icewind Dale 2 made in 10 months. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, from nothing to in, is in, insane. in store shelves. Yeah. Like, that's pretty good. It was crazy. That's so that was exhausting. And I was, that was the first game that I was lead on from start. I, Actually, I don't remember. Steve Bacchus might have been the lead initially before he left, but okay. um, but I pretty much took it through most of its development all, all the way to ship. So okay. that was my first ship title as a lead, and um, I'm glad it was as well received as it was at the time. But you know, I think people sort of felt like I remember going to. I don't know if you've ever felt this because I I don't know. I, I feel like you've worked on mostly high profile stuff, but mm-hmm. um, I remember going to GDC and showing press and people um, Icewind Dale two and the look of like. They're not interested in this uh, at all. Yeah. Well, and- <laughs> I, re- I, I remember people, that was kind of the debate about Icewind Dale 2 of like, like, this, this, the, you know, like, you know, what, yeah, it's like, never, it was never Winter Nights was, was the thing, right? It was just looming over. Yeah. And I was like, well, well, who cares about this? Right. This like, is, this is all, like, are they really still making games and- in this thing? I mean, for, for us, we were like, excellent. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More of the thing that we like just, you know, because yeah, we would have just kept playing Icewind Dale as long as there were, you know, more levels basically. Yep. So, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I was, I was glad that it, it came out as well as it did, but that was, you know, it was definitely a feeling of like, ah, geez, like no one, no one really wants to work under those circumstances. Yeah. And, um, and it just kind of started descending from there. Like we, we lost the, um, did it, did it sell okay? I think it sold okay. Yeah. I mean, especially considering the resources that were put into it, I think it sold yeah. okay, but it was definitely like, well, how, how well do you expect exactly. this game? That's very, you know, looks very old. I mean, in a weird sense, like it's kind of good that they did try to make another one with a crazy schedule because if you had waited another six months, like, Oh, then it would have been, no, yeah. It would have been even more yeah. crazy to make um, one, right? Like this is like, this was pretty much your last. That was the last one. Yeah. I mean, at that time I was kind of like, are we really going to crack that old dusty, you know, chest open and keep working on this yeah because we had been working in 3d engines for you know a couple of years on torn and yep. black hound so then after that um we through for legal reasons and contractual reasons that are too complex to get into we lost the right to make um most D games but we still had the right to like baldur's gate as a title, but like the Black Hound didn't have anything to do with Baldur's Gate. Okay. And so we're like, well, so you, what? You could keep working on stuff that you already, already developed, sort of? Well, no. Like it was it basically it got canceled because they're like, well, we don't have No, I mean, to... sorry. I meant like the, in the Baldur's like stuff like Baldur's Gate because there was an established brand there. You could keep... uh, I, I, yeah. Again, it was very complicated. Yeah, okay. But basically what it came down to is this is not actually a Baldur's Gate game. It is definitely not an Icewind Dale game. Therefore, we will cancel it. Right. And, because and we, don't, we don't have the license anymore. We don't have the license anymore, practically speaking. Yeah. And that was very devastating. For That was the first project cancellation that I personally had to deal with. And was, it was, was, were they, was it Wizards at that point? Um, um, well, they, here's the thing. Like, the D&D license is always in this weird, yeah, like, sure. you know, three-way death duel. Like, um, I think at that time it was Hasbro, Atari, and, um, and, and Wizards. Right, okay. And, and were they trying to... We were like, we're going to transition to a completely different developer. Is that what I don't know. I mean, because Bioware was still developing Neverwinter. Oh, yeah, that's um, true. And, yeah, it, and it, was, it was complicated. Okay. So All right. Well, it, that. Yeah, it got canceled. <laughs> that was a huge, huge bummer for me. Yeah, sure. Um, but there were also a lot of, like, things that we had done in a goofy way while developing the Blackhound. 
And we're like, now we're going to get to work on Fallout 3. Okay. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like, yeah. I'm bummed that I just wasted years of my life to get this game that got canceled. But Fallout 3, like, we've been waiting. Like, ever. Yeah. I remember we, even when I got to the studio, people were like, Fallout 3, Fallout 3, yeah, Fallout yeah. 3. We haven't, I don't think we've really brought up Fallout 1 or 2. But, like, so were you really into those games? Like? I was super into those games, yeah. I mean, I played them in college. Uh -huh. And, um, yeah, I, I was super into Fallout 1. I was less into Fallout 2, but I was really into both of them. Yeah. Um, and uh yeah and so like when i came to black island like oh man yeah. i hope i get to work on fall they're one of the pretty much only computer games i can remember especially from that era that like really committed to like you know we're gonna do the best we do to like recreate a i i, I don't want to say in-person role-playing experience but like a, a one but like we really commit to the choices yeah you yeah. know i mean that was what was was blew me away it was i was like wow like you can really be a whole bunch of different yeah characters not just in the sense of mechanically but personality-wise, like, you can make real serious choices about people living and dying and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, they put in the work. Like, oh, yeah. 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 And, that and, and, that, and that's why Fallout is, again, like, a game that I look to as a, a touchstone for a lot of stuff, especially when it comes to giving the player freedom to do what they want to do. Yeah. Um, and so Fallout 3, we're like, nah. But, like, no, I... I, I as passionate as all of us were, I don't think any of us were as passionate about it as Chris Avalon was. Sure. Because he had written, you know, just a huge amount of material of ideas, <laughs> arguably too many. Because <laughs> yeah. I remember I was like, okay, dude, we got to <laughs> we gotta make a single, you know, plot here, through line this, um, mm -hmm. and, and like a finite list of areas and all that stuff. But, you know, we had learned, I think, a lot of stuff from our mistakes on the Black Hound. Uh -huh. um, we're like, okay, now we're going to we're gonna take these lessons and apply them to Fallout 3. Our pipelines got um, a lot faster and a lot smoother. Uh, we were able to make a lot of areas much quicker. What um, was it going to be? Was it going to be like a 3D game? But like, like no, I mean, maybe the way Neverwinter Nights was? was it kind of yeah, like I mean, we still like had that? an isometric, or I shouldn't say isometric camera. Right, we whatever the right term for yeah, it is. But. You know, yeah, it's not literally ISO, but it's a, a top-down angled camera. Yeah. And, um, and it could rotate. And it, but it was a 3D level, and um, I mean, it really used the, the same tech as a Black Hound, so it was all baked in light maps. And we also had the pop off ceilings, just like Fallout. So when okay. you walk into a building, it would fade okay. off. So, but you know, fundamentally, it would play like this. It played the original. This wasn't like a completely radical reimagining. Like, no, no, it was just like we were trying to, and it was weird too because we got pushback. I remember, um, I think it might have been even Rob Nestler, who's at City now. He was like, "Well, why are you?" Like, why are you even doing 3D if you're not doing like a close camera? And I'm like, well, there's lots of other advantages to using 3D. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that's not the only real, like you can still have a camera pulled out. He's like, yeah, but it doesn't look 3D. And I'm like, I don't. but that was like that sort of weird vibe. Like, whoa, this is like ISO views were dated. Well, that was stuff a, like that. That was a weird period. I mean, yeah, I, it was like, very strange. Because we were transitioning from Civ 3 to Civ, you know, Civ 3 was 2D and Civ yep. 4 was 3D. And there wasn't really a good reason why Civ 4 it was 3D. 3D. It was just like, 3D, man. Like, no, you know, I mean, like, and publishers be, were really weird about it. Yeah, you don't want to be left behind, right? No. Like, and like, you know, I mean, I'm really proud of Civ 4, but like, when I look at it, it's like, well, it's a little, you know, it's got some rough edges <laughs> because like, it was our first, well, I guess the Pirates was 3D, but it was the first 3D Civ and like, we were trying to figure it out, figure it out. And like, I think Civ 5 looks gorgeous, right? Yep. Like, and like Civ 4 was like, well, we were trying to figure it, out, it out, you know? Yeah. And like, it was just like, well, we're going to, we got it. We got to bite, you know, like whatever. The, it really did feel like it is time now to be in 3D. Yeah, like, we, have to, okay. we have to give it a shot now, like whether we like it or not. Right? Yeah. And I, I really like, this has come up in a number of, of interviews recently where, you know, people are talking about Deadfire and, and well, Pillars and Deadfire and, um, you know, all the other sort of revival games that are more sort of traditional style. And they're like, well, what do you think changed? And I'm like, well, 
nothing really changed other than our finance model. Because here's the thing, like fans didn't really, like I don't really believe that fans left 2D. I believe publishers left 2D. Yeah. Yep. And it was frustrating to see an audience going like, hey, can we get more games in this style? Yep. And we're like, I guess not, because no one will fund us to make games yep. that are 2D. Oh, yeah. There is, I mean, we both know this, like, so much from, yeah. like, we could probably talk for, like, an hour on this. But there is, like, a, such a huge disconnect between publishers and fans. Yes. Right? It's been, not just publishers, but specifically the people who make the the green light decisions of mm -hmm. a publisher, right? Like, I mean, that's that leads to so many issues in the industry, you know. And, and like, yeah, there's so many... You know, yeah. They, I mean, the fans don't really. It's it's not. It should be a market based system, right? Sure. But like, it just doesn't work out. Like, I mean, no. we're 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 way closer to it now than we've ever been. But like, of course, back then we were probably the farthest we were ever from that because yes. the projects were getting so much more expensive. Yeah. And uh, you know, ten years ago in the mid nineties, like you know those you know those. That's actually twenty years ago. Well, I mean, from <laughs> yeah. from two thousand from two thousand five. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, but back then, like, you would still make two D games just because, like, well, how much is it? It just doesn't cost that much, right? Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, everything now became, um, you know, such a bigger commitment. You were you had to talk to a different type of money guy, right? And that you know these these people are getting farther and farther away from like the you know the people who actually wanted to buy the game. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, it was a bummer. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, we started working on Fall 3, and, uh, but Interplay was sort of collapsing around our ears, and it was mm -hmm. looking like we were going to have less and less support. Um, Fergus and the people who would go on to become the owners of Obsidian were already making their exit plans. And they left, and, you know, after Avalon left, I took over as the, um, as the project lead for Fall 3. Okay, but, so if Fer Fergus left, and Avalon left, and obviously a whole bunch of other people left. Like, yeah. What were you thinking? I, well, I mean, I, I was like, this is finally my chance to work on Fallout 3. Uh -huh. And I know there are still talented people left here. I'm like, we at least have to, and I think, you know, it'd be interesting to actually go back and talk to Tom, so Tom French started as a programmer at Black Isle and uh -huh. he, um, he became a producer and he was my producer on Fallout 3. And I think, and Tom is also really passionate about Fallout. And we were like, at least we got to get through a demo. We okay. at least got to get a demo done. Like, if it doesn't go anywhere after that. Yeah, I was wondering what your daylight was. Because, like, you must have been aware there's a good chance this whole thing is just going to... Yeah, and it was... And, and the thing is, like, Fergus really was... was He was Black Isle. Yeah. And um, not to, you know, diminish the contributions of other people, but at Interplay, Fergus was, like, the bulwark against the yeah. rest of Interplay. Yeah, for sure. And... Um, and after he left, like we were kind of just adrift, um, yeah. not not adrift in our own what we were doing, but like from the rest of Interplay. Yeah. And even though we were in the same building and uh, we were just like, let's make a demo, like let's make a really kick ass demo and see what we can do. I think we can make something really cool. And the people who were left there, like we busted ass and somehow that demo leaked. I swear I didn't do it. Okay. Um, and um when did it leak was that during uh, the project no i think it was a couple of years after the closure of black isle someone oh, okay. had like you know snuck it out or whatever okay i didn't i didn't know there was a redemption that came yeah um okay and which you know obviously you know it looks really dated by, by today's standards but um did you, did you feel like nice that it leaked 
Like, What's that? Like, I mean, is what was it? No, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, like, there's some stuff where I look at it and I'm like, ah, in retrospect, like that, you know, was clunky and clumsy or whatever. But like, um, it's always a tr- it's always a mix mix of emotions when I see a demo from a canceled project leak because it's always really rough. And like, I I as the the create you know one of the creators can see the the light shining within it, but I know that the un you know undeved. I sees it and just sees a lot of problems. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that can be like aliens. There was also a demo that leaked of aliens, which I also did not leak. Um, but you know, and that looks like even clunkier in a lot of ways than, than our fallout demo. But, um, I think it's, it's cool that people got to see, like, we really were trying yeah, <laughs> to yeah, make yeah. something. I mean, but, I, I just kind of feel like, I mean, it's funny because you, we put a lot of work into stuff and there's a lot of stuff we put work into that just really just, just vaporizes. Right. Yeah. It's like goes away forever. And like, you know, I don't, I just, I really wish that, like, you know, anything I work on, people could see it, whether it's, like, whether something comes out or not, because that's just, that's all part of the process, you know? And yeah. it's, like, interesting to see the stuff that didn't work as well. Yeah. Like, you know, obviously that in, in a commercial setting, like, I don't even know what that means, right? Yeah. But, like, well, and also usually it's it's less, it's more like the the publisher or whatever is like, well, I don't want to, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. My, it's our stuff and we don't want yeah, people yeah, to see yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. All right, um, so you guys are trying to get well. You so you did build a demo. We we built a demo and we showed it, and basically they would said, like you know that they'd already decided to cancel it to expire. And I'm yeah. like, fascinating. So was there, was there anything you were trying to do with fall? I mean, obviously you were you were dealing with the 3D, so that was mm-hmm. a huge thing. But like, and you know, you were trying to carry forward the you know freedom and meaningful choice. Yeah. But like, was there anything you do you were doing specifically that was like? like noteworthy of like yeah i mean we so like that was different from the the previous ones i was trying to i looked at the inner i was trying to um revise the rpg system to be a little more focused um i wouldn't say streamlined because i can't remember if there were fewer i think there might have been a couple of fewer skills but it was sort of like rolling certain skills together to get broader use out of them Uh um because there were certain skills where it's like geez like a designer would really have to bend over backwards to get like regular use throughout the game out of this um, and then from an interface perspective, some of the interfaces that I designed were pure garbage, honestly, but, um, cause we're sort of still stuck in the late nineties, mm-hmm. um, and RPGs. But, uh, one of the things was, uh, context sensitive interactions. So, uh, Fallout 1 had the skill decks button where you would click the button and then you would click the, um, the skill you wanted to use and then you'd click on the thing. And I'm like, 90% of interactions, that's a contextual thing that should be intuited by the type of interaction that it is. So like, if it's a locked thing, I want to use, you know, like the thing to pick locks on it. If, yeah, it's, yeah. if it's this, I want to use that. And then with uh, with uh, being able to script overrides and things like that, so that the the inter- the experience of interacting with the world was a little more fluid and intuitive. Um, and also really, you know, like emphasizing with 3D, one of the things that was nice for us was like, hey, you can get a lot more character customization than you do from sprites. And so I was trying to show like, wow, you get like we did different body types, mm-hmm. uh, different ethnicities, different like we had, you know, mustaches and hair and all these bits and pieces that could go on. Um, and we had like a 3D avatar in the in the inventory, which is a thing that we had not had in the past. And so it was it was uh, you trying to use 3D to the best of its abilities um, and then trying to really try to stay true to the spirit of Fallout while bringing it into a 3D world and making the the interaction interface is just uh, cleaner. All right. Okay. All right. So you uh, you got the demo done. It was it was. And that was it. And I actually yeah. I had re- I had resigned. Like there was one there was one day where um we had we had like one senior character modeler mm-hmm. left, and 
interplay development took him away to another project. And I'm like, mm, that's not a good sign. That's it. Well, I was just like, that's it. Like there's, if they had any interest in seeing this through, right. they would not take this guy off the project. This is like, this, they had been sort of nickeling and diming away and like yeah. pulling people over to other stuff. And I'm like, this is not, that's it. And, uh, and that's when I started looking around for, for jobs. Um, and I looked at, um, actually I might've started looking around a little earlier just for safety. Sure. Right. And, um, I looked at, um, high voltage in around, uh, like Hoffman estates. I think they might've moved now, but they were around Chicago. Then I looked at, um, uh, actually interviewed an ensemble. Oh, okay. <laughs> and they said, you should make RPGs. Um, <laughs> I was like, maybe you're right. Probably right. I think actually Graham Devine maybe got that job um, huh. <laughs> that I was applying for, um, which is interesting. Uh, and then uh, I applied at Midway, which I was like, well, this would be very interesting. It's console uh, primarily, which I had no experience with. Um, it's in San Diego, which is, you know, close enough to Orange County that yeah. I'm like, eh, not super scared, but it's different. Did you interview at Bioware? I did not. Did you think about it? Not really. Really? Yeah. Because I'm like, I was like, I was like, there's only so many RPG developers. Well, there is one pretty well noted yeah. RPG developer. You just didn't think about it, so? Mm, no. Yeah, for one reason or another. I mean, I, I can't necessarily go back and think about my thought processes, but um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I just Ed, really... Edmonton's not Canada, but I mean, yeah. still, like, <laughs> they definitely make RPGs. So. Yeah. Um, and actually, like, at the time, it, it was interesting. There was. Um, there was still like some ongoing personality conflict between me and Fergus. Okay. And so, which, cause some people were like, why didn't you just go to Obsidian? Right. And, um, <laughs> like there was, there was some conflict between us. And I remember, I think it was, uh, especially Darren Monaghan and Chris Avalon were like, can you guys like, just kind of talk through this. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, uh, met with Fergus for lunch and at the end of it, we both left thinking like, I can't work. Like, <laughs> like this is not like this. No, like it's thanks. Um, like he, he was also kind of like, I can't work with this guy right now. Um, and so I'm like, well, a, I mean, I, I kind of only asked this because obviously eventually you guys figure things out, but sure. like, can you define like why, why um, you guys would have a hard time working together? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, um, I, it was sort of disagreeing about very fundamental, like, um, like risk management and, um, sort of like being able to have trust in the people that you work with. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I felt that Fergus didn't trust me enough to okay. make smart decisions about, um, things on a project. Like one of the things on Icewind Dale 2 was there was a lot of argumentation about switching the attributes over to a third edition style. You're right. Which meant primarily, the primary difference is that um, everything advances on evens. Okay. And it advances linearly. Yeah. Every stat does that. Yeah. Um, these are things that I I edited locally in the 2DA. So Bioware uses just a, a tab delimited, like 2DAs, two-dimensional uh, two arrays, mm -hmm. Excel files, whatever. They're just notepad files, whatever. Yeah. And um, human readable, you open them up. Yep. And uh, so I did that and I converted them all over to use three E specs. And there was like only one thing that might have required code. And I was like, Ferg, here's like a really easy thing that we can do to make this three E compliant. Um, and he, and I was like, I, I would like to do this. It like, I can do everything on the data side. I've already done it on the data side. I'm playing with it locally. Um, and it's not really, you know, it's, I haven't seen any problems at all. Mm -hmm. 
And he's like, well, we just don't know what else, what other problems it's going to cause. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, we do. <laughs> like we, like I looked at it and, and Rich looked at it and we, and we had, a, you know, like we, we understand the system pretty thoroughly. We've worked in this engine for quite a while. I mean, this is just the data driven side of the equation. It's just feeding into the same things it's always fed into. None of the values I'm using are out of bounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of the things we're talking about changing on programming side are really risky. And we literally argued about it for, um, I think I added up all the hours and it was like literally days of time oh, spent arguing about this. And I'm like, dude, this is such a simple thing. It's very straightforward. I really think that it would be a very quick and easy ad. I don't, and I, I and I was very stubborn because I, sure. I was very persistent about it, which is the thing that he didn't like about me at the time. Cause I'm like this, like, just do it. Like I'm playing with this every day. It's totally fine. Um, and I was like, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sabotage the the project by doing this. Um, that's just one example, but there were, there were a lot of headbutting moments like that where I was just like, please have faith that I'm going, I'm doing this with the best interest of the project right. in mind. Um, so stuff like that was still like at the forefront. Kind of your guys um, it wasn't necessarily at the forefront, but it was like a concern for both of us. Yeah. Like he, he viewed me as very like relentless basically. Yeah. And uh, I just, yeah, I thought like, you know, you should trust me with this stuff. So I was probably, I was relentless I was with say, it. Were you relentless? I, I was. I was fairly relentless with yeah. that stuff. Um, part of it was I was just like, just do it. It's not a problem. <laughs> um, and uh, do you have now that you've you know been in the industry a lot longer and you've seen a lot of different types of projects? Do you have a different appreciation for like his perspective at all, or like you view it any differently now? Um, I mean, I, I understand the reason because, you know, it's not like I was the most responsible person in the world or anything like that. Like, I understand that as the head of the division, he needed to be cautious about right. certain things. Um, but my, my, my sort of view was like, I totally get that. And I want him to be the person who is concerned about that. But I also want the risk analysis to be like a sober one. Right. And that's really where I was coming down to is I'm like, there are definitely times where you should say, don't do this, where like, this is a feature that will be very expensive right. and and time consuming and risky. And then there are other things where it's, you know, the analysis, everyone's analysis is pretty much that this is not risky yeah. and it adds you something. Should, you should take the time to find out about what you're saying no to. Yes, right. exactly. And that, that's really what it came down to. But but on the other end, I, would, I was just relentless about, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's no way we would have talked about it for you know, days of real time if I had not kept going to him and yep. saying, Fergus, I want to talk about this again. And he's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> give it up. Oh, no, I'm not going to give it up. Yeah. So, so like, yeah, so I get it. Um, and, but at that time I was just like, I don't know, like I gotta, I gotta go try something else. Cause yep. I had, I'd been at Black Isle for, from 99 to 2003. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, and so I was like, I may, let, let me see what console games are like. Let me see what San Diego is like. Right. Um, okay. Completely different group of developers. Right. Okay. So we. So where did you go? You went to. I went to Midway San Diego. Midway San Diego. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what did you What did you work on? Uh, I worked on Gauntlet Seven Sorrows. Okay. Um, I would say it's an ill-fated game, but a lot of the gauntlets are ill-fated. <laughs> um, yeah. I, yeah. Don't, I don't remember that one specifically. So yeah. I, <laughs> was it a console game? It was a console game. Um, it was. It was in the the fading time of Midway when they were going, th- and it, it it was a really sinking feeling because I didn't really comprehend the the financial problems that Midway was having. Sure, right. And then when I got there, I was like, I just jumped off of one sinking <laughs> ship onto another sinking yeah, ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a. Uh, I mean, John Romero was the creative director. Oh uh, really? Yeah, he was the he was the creative director. Well, at first, he was the creative director and the and the um, 
uh, lead designer. But then after I was there for a little while, he decided I should be the lead designer. Okay. And um, we were using Renderware. Mm-hmm. And uh, was this just you know, like you know like was it like a PS2 game? Yeah, it was a it and was a yeah it was yeah it was PS PS2. So it's like a f- Xbox, yeah, PS2 Xbox. Okay, so it's like a four-player game where like everyone's controlling the four classic characters, and you're trying to make that work in the, that era, basically. Yeah, and and yeah, we're trying to make it work in that era, and also Midway at the time had this big like internally they were like we're going to be because they had Mortal Kombat and they had a few other games that were mature. They're like this is going to be our thing. <clears throat> we're going to be the studio that makes mature games, yeah. and so like make mature Gauntlet, and I'm like, all right, here you go, and I just got crazy. Um, <laughs> it's like. It was really like, you know, um, you know, like dark tone, blood sacrifice, like crazy. Uh, and it was like, it was a very serious and sober sort of straight laced take on, on Gauntlet. Um, the art, everything from the art style to the, the story and everything was like way, like it was, it was not like Gauntlet from ages past, but they had said like, yeah, we want a mature Gauntlet. Yeah. And so I'm like, hell yeah, yeah. let's, yeah. let's, let's go crazy on this. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the lie, I don't. The, it's actually a really tiresome thing to talk about, but I will say that, you know, things, things went south on the project. Um, a lot of projects at Midway were having trouble at that time and, uh, Midway was having financial problems and it turned out that it was kind of like, well, these other two projects have no hope of slipping, slip, uh, of shipping before the end of the quarter. Uh, so it's gotta be gauntlet. And it became a death march. I'm like, I'm not staying around for that. I'm sorry. And a lot of people I think to this day are mad at me for leaving, but I'm like, guys, I do not think this is going to work out well for you. I don't. I don't think this is going to be a great game, no matter how hard you work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do not think that Midway is going to reward you for doing what you're doing. And sure enough, they were almost all laid off at the end of the project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so they were just they're they're trying to make the game faster than it would be possible to make. Well, I mean, they made it and they came out. Well, sure, but it was make a good game. Yeah, and that's the thing. But they were like, well, you know, we 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 need yeah, yeah. we need a skew to come out basically. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So, yeah, and then around that same time, you know, uh, I was um, I was talking to Darren Monahan up at Obsidian, okay. who's, you know, from, from Black Isle. And uh, he was like, dude, come up here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, eh, I don't know. I'm like, maybe. I'm like, yeah, things are things are kind of getting rough down here. And, um, and uh, I honestly, by the way, I should say I did really learn a lot from the developers at Midway. Like sure. they, a lot of them and some of them remain friends uh, of mine to this day. They taught me a ton about making games for console and action games and all sorts of stuff that I had no exposure to. Right. And I'm really grateful that I had that opportunity. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, when things got really, you know, when when we started kind of death marching on um, Gauntlet, I was like, okay, I'm, yep. going, I'm going back up to Orange County mm-hmm. and I'm going to work for Obsidian. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, cool. So what did you, what did you start on? Um, well, first I met with Fergus and we realized <laughs> like, okay, we can work, we can work together again. <laughs> And um, and I think part how of how did too, you convince them that, or how did you guys work it out? We just talked to each other, yeah, yeah. and you know, we we're kind of like, you know, we, we said like the end of Black Isle was a very stressful and emotional sure. time, yeah, yeah. And 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 we were a little bit, just a little bit younger and just a little bit less experienced, yeah. And and we were, we had just come out of this these pressure cookers yeah, of yeah. desperately trying to get these games out, and like. And passionately, like fighting each other about like what's the best thing to do for this project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think just enough, uh, just enough time had passed for us to be like, you know what, this is like this will be okay. We can work together. Yeah, yeah. Good. And um, 
So the first thing I worked on was Neverwinter Nights 2. Okay. And I was really burned out from my time at Midway. And I said, like, I don't want to be a lead designer. That's not what I'm coming here looking for. I just want to be a senior designer working on a game, making content. Like, I just, I want to, I want to leave behind all these stresses of high level, like, interactions with different studios and all that stuff. Like, I just want to make cool stuff. Mm. And, um... That project uh, had a lot of problems, and um, I felt like I was out of sync with a lot of the folks on the project. And then I kind of felt like, oh, maybe, like maybe I shouldn't be on this project. Like maybe you know. And I I talked to the owners and I said, like, is there is there another is there something else here that maybe I could work on? Like if you have a console thing, because I just came off of working on console, like maybe that would be a better fit for me. And um, so I went over to work on another project that you know didn't get super far into development. And uh, and then the lead designer on Neverwinter Nights 2, Ferret Bodwin, left the company and they were really just crunching to get it done. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Fergus said, like, hey, I want you to come back over to take over as lead. I'm like, okie dokie. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's, it's uh, you know, I don't want to say it's like a, a misrepresentation to say that I was the lead designer on Neverwinter 2, but sure. I was the I was the person who who finished it. Sure. Um, and, and really, it was triage. It was largely like, wow, this game is enormous. There's yeah. a lot of features that are half finished. There's a lot of stuff that's only half implemented. Like, what what can we, what do we keep that's really good in quality? What do we see through the end? And what do we just cut our losses on? Right. Um, and and just trying to trying to get the team. Um, and those that was another team of people who just worked themselves to death to make that game as good as it could be. But the scope was was really massive. So. <clears throat> That's cool. Uh, or that's <laughs> yeah, that's, rough. that's cool. Yeah. That was a big death march. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess what I was trying, I was thinking in my head about was like I played the first Neverwinter because it was like the whole, you know, you know this is like this this toolbox right to make adventures was yeah. like this really interesting thing, and mm-hmm. it was pretty interesting to see what happened with it. And I was never quite sure how Neverwinter Nights two fit into that like like initiative basically like I. I mean, I, and that's, this is a thing where, I mean, I, it, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit of an asshole and I'm, I apologize to the people who worked on the game, but I think that there were some real fundamental decisions uh, on Neverwinter 2 that were for the benefit of the single player campaign, mm-hmm. which don't get me wrong, is an important thing, right? Um, but which made user generated content monumentally more difficult okay. for people to do. Um, like terrain in Neverwinter Nights One were just flat tiles. Yeah. And if you want to make a forest, you would like slap down flat forest tiles that right. had trees in them. And then if you had cliffs, that was like a you know a, a sheer cliff face, sort of with a, another completely flat top. Right. So it was very dynamic. It was like it was very dynamic. Blocks. It was very easy to make. Yeah. Um, but it was very duplo blocky. Like yeah. it was very chunky, and there was no nuance or subtlety or whatever. Yeah. And um, you know, Neverwinter Two, they're like, oh, let's let's make like a really robust terrain tool where you can like paint different grass textures and you can like just you know deform the terrain in all these different ways and have like rolling hills and like all this crazy stuff and um that decision necessitated an incredible amount of work uh pathing had to be redone uh walk meshes were completely changed um the file sizes of modules bloated immensely one of the really cool things about neverwinter one is that if you connected to someone's server that they had a module on yeah it right, downloaded just, yeah. in like moments. Yep. Um, I mean, because this is still you know mid two thousand, so bandwidth is not quite yep. as uh, free flowing. And um, I mean, the game looked really cool and it had some really neat environments, but like 
the cost the cost to not only support that but then also generate it on our side was right. massive and then when the users got it um that process became incredibly complicated right um also though i think if i recall correctly the original neverwinter tool set was written in borland okay and extending it was like a thing that that was like not really on the table and so they're like well we if we want to extend this tool set at all we have to basically rewrite the whole thing okay um so there, there were a lot of like whoa this is a big cost this is a big cost this is a big cost um we rewrote the entire renderer we rewrote the entire uh gui and text display system um and so there are a lot of things where like this thing for being a sequel was a an incredibly expensive sequel right um in terms of just the sunk tech costs right so yeah yeah, I remember when I played Neverwinter, the first one, like I could tell the game, the single player campaign was limited, mm-hmm. but I knew why it was limited, right? Like I understood that like... Yeah, I was kind of like, yeah, this is kind of a demo of the sorts of things you can do. Yeah, it's like, you know, yeah, there is going to be, there are going to be trade-offs here that they're making because they have this other thing that's important to them. And uh, and yeah, I never played Neverwinter Nights too, so I didn't know that you kind of went through that. But I never really heard about content coming out, so like yeah, it um, was. I mean, there were some people that made some. I mean, modders are sure. incredible, yeah. and they will do amazing things for sure. Um, but I do remember. I think it was GDC. I don't remember if it was GDC two thousand six or two thousand seven. But I remember being in the West Hall and running into Ray Mazika. He's like, "You guys are doing really cool things with with the tools," and I'm like, "No, we're not." <laughs> Because I'm like, it's cool for us, but I said, I, I really feel like it's going to be a lot more difficult for, for end users. And he's yeah. like, oh, but it's a lot more powerful. I'm like, yeah, but that, it, it raises the barrier to, yeah. to entry. Well, that's a very, this is a tricky thing because like, it, you know, when you're, when you're making choices like that, that are, there is no perfect solution. No, right? there and isn't. Like, yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, right. It's helping this part of the game, but it's really that part of the game. Like, how does a you know who's supposed to be making those decisions on a project and like they're not easy to be made and like eh, you know i think the other thing too is that for all through black isle and through like the first half of obsidian's history we didn't have directors okay we just had like there's a lead designer and a lead programmer and a lead artist and maybe a lead animator and these were peers right and so you guys just kind of worked your way into that corner yeah like, like we would kind of were like let's do this let's do this let's do this and there wasn't um like there was always an executive producer but they were primarily responsible for like scheduling and budgeting and stuff like that yeah. to make sure that we're staying on track not about like making executive decisions there wasn't a creative director right? no not really i mean it was sort of the lead designer right. but the lead designer practically speaking could be over overruled by yeah. another discipline they could say like we don't want to do that yeah 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 okay <clears throat> so yeah. it did result in some some dysfunction. Right. Okay. All right. Well, so what came after Neverwinter's 2 then? Oh, geez. Um, I mean, I did a little bit of work on Alpha Protocol. Uh-huh. That's another one where I'm honored to be credited on it at all. <laughs> sure. Um, okay. Because honestly, I have a lot of respect for, especially the narrative designers who worked on that to make a, an incredibly reactive game. Right. I can't take any credit for that stuff. I just worked on the close quarters combat system. Right. Um, so I worked on that. But really, at the time, I was working on Aliens, or Aliens RPG. Oh, yeah. I remember you guys were making that for a long time, right? You? <laughs> That's right. I would hear about that, and I don't... I get you. What happened? Um, we had a lot of tech growth problems. We were making our own tech at the time. Um, we had a lot of area pipeline issues. Uh, it took us a very, very, very long time to get areas running. We had a lot of uh, dynamic animation problems. Uh, Aliens 
can run all over everything <laughs> and they can jump and do like and and were you playing like a group of marines is that the basic idea or mm, no so you were playing you could actually uh pick one of a few different classes and backgrounds uh-huh. so you could be an engineer and by the way this is stuff that you can see in the leaked demo um, okay you can be an engineer you can be oh was was it a single character game no. Okay. All right. Well, so why don't you <laughs> answer all these questions? Yeah. So you you were always like um, you were on the ship uh, that was headed for this uh, outpost, and um, you could be a marine, you could be a company agent, mm-hmm. um, you could be an engineer, and I think there was or or, uh, or a scientist, I think. Okay. And these were more or less classes. Um, and then the ship also had it had marine it had colonial marines it had company agents it had all these and engineers and things like that, and this was kind of representing the spectrum of the sorts of characters that you would see in in aliens films, right. and um, you know it was a very sort of classic setup of like stranded on this island overrun by this thing like how do we collectively either as individuals or as a group survive through this or don't and and get out of here, and um, to me aliens plus RPG was a, a perfect fit immediately I'm like awesome I can see exactly how this can work. Lots of people, when they heard that we were making an Aliens RPG, was like, that makes no sense at all. Like, literally, people were just like, I don't even understand why you would make an Aliens RPG. And I'm like, it's about character interaction and overcoming obstacles and, like, conflict and relationships and, like, the striving with each other and yourself to overcome this uh, threat. Um, And so I'm like, I think this is really ripe for a lot of cool mechanics and a lot of cool stuff. Um, And... Uh, yeah, it just uh, tech-wise, we we struggled a lot to to find our way to to make a, a, our technology. Um, however, we we still use a lot of those elements. Like our, our dialogue editor um, started started back then, and we're right. still using it now. It's this incredibly powerful tool. Um, but yeah, it it just it, we had a lot of problems getting the gameplay to feel fluid, um, especially regarding alien movement. Uh, we had a lot of problems getting areas done. And uh, Sega was was funding both Alpha Protocol and uh, Aliens. Okay. And Alpha Protocol was much closer to being finished than Aliens was. Yeah. And they're like, okay, both of these things are kind of in rough shape. Cancel Aliens. Okay. <sighs> so that was another project that where we put a huge amount of time and effort yeah. into it, and we had become very attached to these, especially the characters, because that's I really feel like every Aliens film. Outside of tone, it's really about characters and their interactions. Right. And so we had developed a lot of these really rich and interesting characters and written them out. And yeah. so losing that was like, was tough. Yeah. And then from Aliens was Fallout New Vegas. Okay. After that, yeah. All right. Cool. All right. So were you on? Were you on that from the beginning, or like? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So we uh, Aliens was canceled. That was a big bummer. Um, yeah, that seemed kind of cool. Like, and you, yeah, it seemed really cool because like a lot of people knew. Obviously, you guys had been had tried to make a Fallout game, and like now you guys were getting a chance to. Basically. Yeah, I mean, and that was something I honestly I never, never ever crossed. My, like once Bethesda bought it, I'm like, well, well that's it. Yeah. That's I'm probably never gonna work for Bethesda. I'm probably never gonna have an opportunity to do this. Well, so, what did you think of their <laughs> game, Fallout Three? Um, obviously, it is not the game that we would have made. Sure, yeah. <laughs> or I would have made. Yeah, clearly. Um, but I was like, well, this is this is this is a Bethesda game. Yes. This is a first-person game. Yes. Um, this is very obviously the sort of game that they would make, mm-hmm. um, whether it's Fallout or, or something else. Um, and the thing I think they always nail is like explore, exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sense of you know sort of landmark identification and that that like continual pull forward. Mm-hmm. And the reward loop and all that stuff, um, and then all the visual storytelling, like that's the thing that I think that they 
they nailed there. I mean, they nail it in almost every game that they do. Um, <clears throat> and they brought over, obviously, they brought over a ton of the sort of like the, you know, the, the trappings of, of Fallout. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think it makes sense like setting it on the East Coast totally makes sense because like, I mean, the reason why Fallout is set where it was is because the developers were in Southern yeah, California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah, so the Capital Wasteland, I'm like, yeah, this totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I played like, I had already played Fallout 3 a fair amount. And then when I heard that we were going to um, be working on New Vegas, I just dove in and I put 160 hours into it and explored every single every single location on the map and did every every single quest so yeah. I could fully absorb what it meant to play fall three <laughs> right 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 okay cool so what did you want to do with new vegas what was um it? with new vegas i wanted to um i still wanted to do some revisions to the rpg system mm-hmm. uh either for clarity ease of like differentiation um i also felt like i had all i had felt since Fallout 1, even in college, I was like, big guns does not need to be a skill on its own. Okay. Um, <laughs> I know I was literally waiting like, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, however many, 15 years or whatever. And I'm like, all right, I finally get to kill this, um, which, you know, people were mad about, but whatever. Um, because we kept big guns as uh, a thing that you sure. used. We just put strength requirements on them. And that's another way we leverage the strength skill or the strength attribute. Right. Um, yeah, so it was like refinements to stuff. And then... Um, from a story perspective, I was like, I, re- I really want to, you know, Fallout 3 took, a, took a, a very sort of like heroic kind of perspective on things like you coming out of the vault and going all the way to Liberty Prime. And that thing was very, you know, it had very sort of traditional heroic feeling to it. And um, I hate heroes. No, I like, <laughs> I, I, I really like, I, I love it when games give you that choice. Sure. But... I really believe strongly in in the vibe of Fallout One. I'm like, you can wind up being this, you know, murderer of the overseer and and this black force like moving through the world, consuming everything. And so I was like, oh, let, let's get back to sort of these like um, difficult uh, moral problems, ethical problems, um, you know conflicts between people about resources again this is like historical materialism and stuff like that yeah, yeah. and um and so uh you know chris avalon had the initial idea for the pitch of like you get shot in the head and buried in a shallow or left in a shallow grave outside right. of vegas and i'm like that feels very appropriate mm-hmm. i'm like where do we go from here and so i worked with john gonzalez our creative lead and i said the the game should end with you at hoover dam okay at the battle of hoover dam which is fundamentally between the ncr and seizures legion these two competing ideologies for control of this region, the water and right. the power that come from it. Yep. And, and I said, John, take it away. Like you like start, you know, fleshing out, like how does this journey work? And he conceived of Benny as the guy who shoots you and has the chip that he steals from you and like how that ties into Mr. House. And we had these goals. Like I had a goal of, um, I said, I don't want the player to be forced to make decisions about faction alliances until they get to know the factions. Okay. So in the early game, you're looking for Benny. You're looking for the guy who shot you in the head. But you're being pulled through this wasteland where NCR is mm-hmm. and Siege Legion are. And you can interact with them, but you're not really forced to pick a side. Um, then you meet Mr. House and you find Benny or a, well, a Yes Man and all these guys. And so then after you've kind of seen this conflict playing out, then you're put into the middle of it. And each of these factions is going like, so you have a platinum ship. Right. <laughs> and they're like, why don't you give Platinum Chip to us? And then, you know, you can work together and like, we'll take over Hoover Dam. And uh, 
I wanted also to keep the player's interest um, by not twisting. Like, I'm not a big fan of twists in stories. Right, okay. I like turns. Like, these sort of gradual adjustments mm-hmm. and, like... Um, like you're, you kind of perverts your understanding that you initially had. Right. So NCR, you initially look at NCR and you go like, well, this is like kind of like America. It's a, it's a republic, and you know they have like a, an army of mm. people defending freedom in this area, and like, all right, that's that's what they are. Right. And Caesar's Legion are these, you know, raping, murdering marauders, right. and that's what they are. But then you start to see more of NCR, and you're like, they're pretty corrupt. Mm. They're pretty bureaucratic and incompetent. <laughs> right. Some of their officials are incredibly petty and will do really destructive things based purely on vindictive, horrible, you know, sort of impulses. Right. Uh, and then you get to go talk to Caesar, and Caesar is this very articulate, philosophical maniac. Mm-hmm. And so there is this underlying rationale behind like why his army does the things that it does and right. why he is doing what he is doing. Um, and you meet Mr. House, and Mr. House, you're like, oh, okay, so he's removed from these people, and yeah. like, he's he's the clear mind, and he's a he's a genius, and he has a plan, and but then you realize he also is very fallible. He also, in some ways, is very petty and very vulnerable in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of people, for them, their the final straw is when he says, "Go destroy the Brotherhood of Steel," and they're like, "I don't really want to destroy the Brotherhood of Steel." <laughs> like, what is, like, is that really yeah. necessary? He's like, "Yes, wipe them out. I'm not going to have anyone competing with me for technology yeah. in, in this area." And so the idea was that the, make the player continually sort of question their allegiances. So it's not just like, ah, I like NCR, they seem cool. It's like, really think about like, what do you value from these? And like, are you willing to accept the bad with the good? Or like, do you, and I mean, there are people that will defend the Legion, which is kind of crazy because they're really awful. Right. Um, but there are people who like, no, Caesar, like he makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, like I see people on Reddit or forums <laughs> like that defend that, um, or at least defend the choice of Caesar. Right. Um, and so those were my goals were like to really try to engage the player in these conflicts. And, um, and this all goes back to this idea of war. Like it really like in fall of one, the war never changes and like all wars, it was fought over these resources. Right. And that's really what it kind of all comes back to. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was really it. And also get the game done in 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a pattern here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's true. Like, I mean, the, the games that got canceled were the ones that had the really long development cycles. <laughs> Um, and then the ones that shipped were all done. Fallout New Vegas, of the games that I shipped, um, actually, you know what? I can't remember Neverwinter 2's development cycle, but for games that I worked on from start to finish, it had the longest, it had the longest development cycle, which is 18 months, which is pretty ludicrous. Like none none of us at the studio had any experience working with that engine. stuff, right. Yeah. So by the way, I will say that engine, like I know people kind of get a crowd. I mean, you know, it's got problems, but like, in terms of t- content creation, it is awesome. Yeah, like, right. there is absolutely no way that we would have been able to make uh, a Fallout New Vegas without Bethesda's tool set. It is so easy to use. It integrates with source control so well. Like, right. man. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the whole point of doing... Not the whole point, obviously, but, like, that's the thing that makes a project like that work, right? Yeah. Like, they've laid the groundwork, and then you're, oh, yeah. you're doing... You're in a doing you can tell that it's been iterated on, on, and on, and on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's what makes it such an interesting potential you know, yep. project for you, right? Um, okay, so did your um, 
So you put a lot of work into how how the story worked, or yeah. how, how the, the factions put together, how it all led to. Did it did it pay off the way that you wanted it to? Yeah, I mean, there were certain things that I was bummed about. We didn't get to do post end game content um, because we fell behind on schedule, and it was a very aggressive schedule. Um, the Legion wound up getting a lot of content cut. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had planned out the development of the areas um, just sort of in this radial pattern, working out from the middle of the map. Mm-hmm. And the Legion, because they were in the far eastern portion of the map, mm-hmm. that was some of the last content that we were going to develop. Mm-hmm. And we just had to cut it. And I'm like, geez, that is like really stupid planning on my part because Mr. House has a bunch of stuff in here. Yeah. Um, the Independent Path has a bunch of stuff. The NCR has a bunch of stuff because they're all located around Vegas. But Caesar's Legion is really located dominantly on the eastern side of the map. And the big, the big hub areas that were supposed to have the meat of their quest um, we're going to be across the Colorado River, and all that stuff just had to be cut. Yeah. And so, and so, a lot of people were like, "Wow, these guys really don't feel that fleshed out." And mm-hmm. and also, they're like really reprehensible to a point where, like, it's it's really hard to conceive of many people. Would that have, would people have felt differently? Like, if you had fleshed that out, would you have been able to? What were you going to do with that? That would have changed people. Well, so here's the thing. Like, so we again, it was the idea of like the the turn, like the revelation of certain things that make you go like, well, like I don't know. Um, you know, like Raul and certain other characters talk about, and again, certain people will never be convinced by this no matter what, because yeah, it's sure. repugnant. But like, um, you know, Raul and Cass talk about um, like the relative safety, the sort of Pax Romana, yes. like in the, the ruled areas that uh, those are much safer, they're much more well controlled. Right. You, I assume you know the sort of classic phrase from the, the Roman era, where it's like the the Romans made a desert and called it called peace. peace. Right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, that's the that's your philosophy. Basically. Yep. Um, okay. Well, it's yeah, it's either desolation or or the the peace that comes with conquest. Like once the conquest is passed, there is a new order that yes. is instituted. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, actually, someone recently asked me about that, and I I brought the Tacitus quote up. Yes. Um. So the uh, the uh, yeah, it was basically like showing like here is. Here is like what life looks like in an area that is not an active war zone and is like controlled by the Legion and people have great fear of the Legion, but it is like orderly. It is, there's not much freedom, but it is peaceful and controlled compared to many other areas. Yeah. Um, I don't know how convincing that would have been for people, but but it, it was intended to give like the perspective of like this is this is really what what it is like because that's that's kind of Caesar's argument is that yeah, yeah. he is bringing order out of all this madness. Yeah. No, that is that is too bad. I mean, I mean, it's 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 an argument, and you need to be able to flesh it out some, right? Mm-hmm. And like that's. But really, you just have people saying like, "Yeah, it's better," and you're like, "Well, I mean, if you say so." Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's really what it comes down to. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Um, all right. Cool. So, um, New Vegas came out. And, yep. Uh, um, I mean, I do remember feeling like there were there was a slightly different audience for that game, or like the people who were really into it were like a little bit different from the people who were really into Fallout Three. I think there's a lot of overlap, though. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously. Yeah. But like, um, but the, I guess what I mean is, it seems like there were some people who were drawn in, into New Vegas that hadn't really gotten drawn into Fallout Three. No, I think that's correct, and and I think I think it's the people that really were like they really wanted that morally gray you know the faction interaction they wanted um a ton of choice and consequence um yeah i think those people were the ones who really were like yeah new vegas has all the stuff that i want um but you know like compared to bethesda you know to fall three our exploration loop was not as refined because how could it have been like Mm -hmm. um 
you know, our, our sort of dungeon environments weren't as well crafted as theirs. Um, a lot of our individual locations just, they weren't fleshed out in the way that Bethesda's are just because there's so much, they yeah. have so much more experience with that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, all right, so what, uh, what came after uh, uh, New Vegas? So after New Vegas came a project that we worked on with Microsoft called Stormlands. Heard of that. No, you haven't. <laughs> okay, I guess there's a story here. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't actually think I can talk about it too much. Okay. But it was, um, it was a original IP, our tech. You know, like basically, you know, we had refined like the tech we had made for Aliens got revised heavily and used for Dungeon Siege Three. Oh right, yeah, yeah. And it was very pretty. And so it made like a sort of concept area and like a vibe and an idea of a world. Man, you guys give me a lot of games. You know, um, for um, and then and that tech went on to be used for South Park uh, after yeah. that, which is crazy because it's so different. <clears throat> but um, we, you know, like we kind of made this uh, just beautiful area uh-huh. with a mood, and it was all about. It really was inspired by one of our lead artists, Justin Cherry. is just an incredible artist, and he made these, made these very evocative like landscapes and and skies, and so. I was like, let's make this game, this world that's like all about just these like crazy magical storms. And Justin, the art of featuring the art of Justin Cherry. Yeah, yeah. And um, we made this this little beautiful corner in this world that was um, it was fantastic, but it was not traditional fantasy. It was getting like weird and doony, mm-hmm. and like a lot, a lot of other weird stuff was going on. And um, and we demoed it around, and uh, you know, as is typical, some places were like, "Yeah, it's kind of neat," but I don't know. Right. And um, but we happened to go to Microsoft at a time where they were they were looking for an RPG for what would become Xbox One. Okay. Right. And uh, and yeah, and that's that's really how they they started. They were just like, "Wow, this looks really fresh and crazy," right. and like it's it's um. We need to have an exclusive RPG yeah. for. I mean, because they, they I mean that Fable, but that you know that yep. was about it. Yep. So um, so yeah, that's how that started, and. Uh, it, it uh, I don't know. I mean, it. like I said, I can't go into too many details yeah. about it, but I will say one thing is that Microsoft was actually totally fine with me being as bizarre. Okay. Like not for the sake of being bizarre, but just like there was a lot of just like fanciful, like really weird conceptual stuff that we were doing in it um, that artistically we were just exploring a lot of like, this is really strange and unusual and like this is not... Like, am I looking at sci-fi or am I looking at fantasy? Am I looking at some weird Mobius-inspired thing? Like, what's going on here? Which is really fun. And, you know, Microsoft is just kind of, sure, cool. Like, if it, if it uses our tech, <laughs> it looks yeah. really good. Yeah, yeah. And then keep going. I'm like, all right. But, like, for a variety of reasons, it just, it didn't, it didn't pan out. Yeah, yeah. And, okay. and that was, that was a project that got really big. And uh, when it got canceled, that was when we had our big, I think our biggest layoff to date, um, which was like 40 people. And that was that was the low the low point mm-hmm. of Obsidian. That was where that was like early two thousand twelve. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So it was rough. Okay. So is this basically where the Kickstarter Kickstarter story started? Basically. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Did you have other projects ongoing? Like, I mean, how, how for perspective? How big was this Obsidian when you laid off forty people? Um. Geez, I have it was you know hundred and mid hundred and I don't know. 150, 160 maybe? So it was maybe a quarter of your studio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's... It's a lot of people. That's significant. That's like, that's... It was really awful. I mean, it was, 
Uh, you know, I mean, and it was just like basically Microsoft was like they made this they made the decision, and then that's just the fallout from that basically. Yeah, I mean, like we we couldn't yeah what, what afford do? to pay like four of these forty people. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah, it was it was it was a really rough position to be in. Um, and uh, yeah, there was a lot there was a lot of crying. Like that was the I think I was probably that was the worst experience that I had had in the industry. Like, I mean, I had a lot of projects canceled and whatever, and I, yeah. I'm like personally sad about that, yeah. but seeing 40 people go to their offices and clear them out and leave yeah. is like, that was devastating. Um, so morale was really low at the company, um, especially on the, the team that had, uh, you know, had Stormlines canceled. And um, I think South Park was still going on at that time. Okay. And, but that was like, it would be a, a while, I think before that came out. Okay. And, and that, was, that was your only other project at the time? At least major I, that was I think that was the only major project at the right. time. Yeah. I might be misremembering. Um and so we were, you know, we were looking at this is the story I've told a million times, so I'll just tell the brief version. We were pitching other stuff, mm-hmm. but our hearts weren't any of it in any of it because what type of stuff were you trying to pitch? Uh, it was it was like work for hire stuff for it was all work for hire stuff for publishers who like we want someone to make this game. Sure. And we're like, okay, here's our pitch on this. Yes. And none of us are super enthused about that, especially because we knew that um, because of our financial situation, they basically, publishers would have us over a barrel. And yeah. we're like, here, and we, would, here we go again, getting yeah, backed into a had, corner. And you, right. And you had, you had made a lot of these games. I mean, you had done a lot of this stuff before, right? I mean, you yes. done Corridor 2. and I didn't do Corridor 2. Well, you but did. City, I mean, but yeah. City yeah. did yep. Corridor 2, and there was you know, Fallout New Vegas, and there were Nights 2, and like, yeah. I mean, you know, you're, the studio keeps growing. It keeps going. And it gets growing and, you know, you guys get to do what you get to do, but yeah. But it also felt like treading water because yeah, we still long, didn't own our own IP. Yeah. Like Health Protocol wasn't as Sega's IP. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, so I was pretty bummed. A lot of people were pretty bummed. And that's when we started uh, lobbying really hard, uh, starting with uh, designer Nathaniel Chapman. Mm-hmm. Um, was like we should maybe make a crowdfunded game. Okay, what was the state of crowdfunding this time? Psych- uh, no, so it was pre, uh, it was pre double fine, pre double fine, and so we were like, hey, maybe. Wow. Our, so that's okay because what was the best success? Nothing. <laughs> like no. So <laughs> wow. so so, okay. so here's the thing: is like we were like, why don't we make a small game? Maybe we could crowdfund it, and that was Nathaniel's idea. Okay, and I was like, could we? Like, is that even a pot? So like, he wasn't trying to save the studio. He was just like, this is something we could do. Let's. Yeah, try. like he was like, we we could maybe we could do this, and then um, double fine, and it was like maybe a couple months after that, like double fine did it, uh-huh. like they really did it, and we're like, right. holy shit, like. They did it. Like we could do it. Yeah. Like, and um, we started lobbying pretty hard with the owners. Nathaniel left, and he went on to Blizzard. Um, mm-hmm. But a core group of us were like pounding our fists, going like crowdfunding, <laughs> crowdfunding. Like, let's do this. And from my perspective, because I was seeing more games than like kind of start up, and I was like, guys, we could pitch a Baldur's Gate style game. Yeah. Now, yeah. if we don't do it very quickly some person who is obviously smarter than us <laughs> is going to do it. Yeah. Like it is absolutely going to happen. And yeah. it's just a matter of time. Like we need to do this. Yeah. Um, well, it was very, I mean, it was very telling, right. That the big success was like a remake of an adventure game. Yes. Right. Like some, you know, great, great type, you know, genre that was big and, uh, you know, did very well in the nineties and a lot of time had passed and it totally gone away. Right. Yeah. And, like, and so, and, and like I said, I knew that the fans had not left. Yes. I knew that the fans were still out there and like 
playing the old games and like, man, wouldn't it be cool if they made a game like this again? Yeah. And I didn't know that they would fund this one, but I'm like, I know there's somebody out there who's interested. I don't know if they can make the budget we need. Like, I have no idea. It's been so long since we've made a game of this scope and scale. Like, who knows? Yeah. And so we, yeah, we, you know, like I said, this is a story that's been told many times, but like we budgeted at 1.1 million. When we launched that that Kickstarter, um, what did you guys ask for? 1.1. You asked for 1.1. Okay. And, and so we, you thought like you were like um, you were asking for the amount of money you actually thought you needed to make the game. Yeah, but it was also a, a much more limited scope game. Sure. And and I said at the time, like I think we have a 50-50 chance of funding this before the 30 days are up. Okay. Sure. And in 27 hours, it was fully funded. <laughs> <laughs> And by the end, it was three point nine million, and yeah. then after PayPal and everything else, it was four point two. And well, that was great. the How, rest so, is history. So, what did that feel like? That like, oh, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, like, I it I, it like literally just reversed the morale. Like the oh, morale. Yeah, I, I think I don't. I think the morale was as high as it's ever been at the end of that campaign. Like, you go online and see. I, you know, we have the making of Eternity documentary, and there's a little clip of the countdown to the final funding thing, and it's. Like people were coming over from South Park yeah. to just join in and like everyone's screaming and laughing and like for weeks after that we were, I mean we were desperate suddenly we we're like oh my god we have to make all this and we we you know like we we had stretch goals and like now we have to figure out the logistics and really make this game but there was a we were you know buoyed by this just incredible appreciation like oh my god we we did it like we actually saved the studio <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. Um. Yeah, well, that's 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 great. I mean, it was it was I mean, it was amazing to see. I mean, because you know, it's just very validating that like you know that that the thing that mattered to you and mattered to the fans, like that there's a way to actually make it happen. Yeah, and that's and 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 through the, and the process was very gratifying because, um, and actually, I will say Bethesda was super hands off about how we developed New Vegas, which was mm -hmm. great. But I had a lot of experiences with publishers yes. that just had like second guess everything and micromanage everything. Um, and it was great to be able to go. Now, half of our fans are ridiculously uh, insistent on certain things, mm -hmm. uh, which can be frustrating, but I would rather deal with their crazy demands than a publisher second guessing everything. Sure. And and sort of like second guessing, like, no, what they what they really want is this. I'm like, dude, I, I think they, they don't always know exactly what they want but i have yeah. more faith in them to articulate that than the publisher yeah now was there something in the pitch the kickstarter pitch that was um um beyond uh this you know spiritual successor to the infinity engine games like like was did you because i know you had other things that you wanted to achieve like you didn't obviously want to just redo these games right like um, did you talk about that at that point no i mean like in my mind i was like you know i i sort of accepted from the beginning that there there were certain things that you know, like I said, like class-based games are not yeah. my favorite thing right. and attributes and stuff like that, where there were certain things where I'm like, it's probably going to have to have classes, probably going to have attributes, probably going to have to be real time with pause. Like I still to this day want to work on a turn-based game. I've never had the opportunity. Mm. Um, yeah. Really frustrating. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, there were, there were, I mean, there were sort of subtle things about like, you know, this is probably going to be a traditional Western Euro-y style world. Um, but again, I would bring my sense of like historical materialism and all this other stuff to make mm -hmm. it a little more grounded, uh, just cause that's my, my way of world building. Right. And I, and I did not think that that would be something that the fans would dislike, right. even if someone might be like, Meh. like I, I want the super high fantasy stuff. I'm like, well, too bad. Right. Um, <laughs> I thought most people would be at least okay with it, if not into it. Um, so yeah. And I, and like I said, like 
because the thing is we would do updates and people were like, hey, this sounds like you're making stuff up as you go along. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's that's yeah. why we're kickstarting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what was the yeah, what was this process like? I forget like every there's so many projects back then, I forget exactly where, where you guys were, but like how how open or involved were like people like how were you exposing the game to the fans like as it went along? Well, we did we did a lot. We did a lot of updates regu- regularly and early. Mm-hmm. Um so this means you shoot a video, you write a post just to tell you where you go. Shoot a video, write a post. Um, like I talked about mailing engagement. Mm-hmm. And I did an update where it was just me talking. And then I went to, um, we had a little dungeon environment set up with uh, Dwarven Forge and miniatures. And I explained, I, I demonstrated with miniatures and all that sort of stuff. Um, it was mostly like, there, w- there wasn't a lot of entertainment value in them then. It was most uh, other than me cracking jokes and making stupid noises. Right. Um, it was really just saying like, hey, this is a system we're thinking about doing. These are some mechanics we're thinking about doing. Uh, sometimes I do lore updates and things like that. And, right. um, and it got a little, actually that was the thing, like early on the pace of those, because I think we were doing them like, I don't know if it was once a week. I mean, after launch, I think it was like once every two weeks. It was like, geez, that's, that's, that's a lot of stuff. You probably got you, like the Kickstarter thing like felt so fast. And it was like, oh, we can just, you know, keep everyone updated. Yeah, and I was like, no, 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 we got to slow this down. But then there was, you know, internal discussion where we're like, well, but now people expect it. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's not a great reason to insist on keeping doing it. Like, let's, let's gradually slow this down and and tell them like, hey, we can't really keep this pace up. We want to focus on the game so we can get it done faster for you. And we'll, you know, don't worry. And everyone was uh, fine with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I but mean, you, we, uh, we try to be very open with them. Yeah. What we're doing. But the, when, uh, was there a period where you got them access to the game? Like, you know, a certain period, like, uh, like the back how, beta. Yeah. How early were they playing the game? Um, I mean, maybe not as early as they would have liked, but, uh, there was, you know, building an RPG, there's so much sure. stuff, so many like under the hood systems yep. to just make it do the stuff it's supposed to do, especially with a, a D and D style yeah, one. Yeah. Um, certainly you can make much simpler RPGs that, that are still really fun to play that don't use all that layered stuff. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> we, oh geez, I can't remember if it was Gamescom. Well, maybe uh, the simplest way you might say is like, like how many months before you guys shipped? Oh, they, like, um, get, 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 start playing it. I think it was about, jeez, oh, nine, nine months? Okay. Yeah, it must have been Gamescom 2014, which would have been August, and then it shipped in, can I do math? It shipped in March? Right. Something like that? Yeah. Okay. And that was kind of a new thing for you, right? Because you hadn't, yeah. normally you've been making everything in a silo, right? And yep. like, you just make it and throw it to the wall and hope for the best, right? Yep. So how did, did that affect how you developed? Like, did oh, totally, it? yeah. So th- can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, um, <clears throat> you know, there are a lot of things that are sort of like look and feel related. Um, there's also like gameplay pacing. Um, arguably, we didn't you know correct enough for the feedback that we got, but we did try to. Um, there are lots of exploits people found. Sure. Um, AI, there, a lot of AI exploits and things like that. Um, and there, there are a lot of people that complained about just like just pacing style of play. Yeah. Is there anything you think of that's like a good example of like something that would have turned out very differently if they hadn't been playing it nine months at a time? And, and you know, affected the game for the better, right? Yeah, um, I mean, our AI definitely got improved a bunch, although it still had a lot of a lot of flaws in it. It would, I mean, it would have been really pretty bad right. uh, if it had shipped without backer feedback. Um, I feel like pace of combat was also uh, we got a lot of great feedback on that sort of stuff. Uh, there was also feedback that we couldn't really do much about, like load load times, which sure. on Dead Fire we improved a lot. 
But um, I think a lot of it just came down to more like moment to moment pacing, targeting, clarity of, of yeah. interaction, stuff like that. Uh, and then there was just a lot of balancing stuff where they're like, this power is ridiculous. And sure. This power is like worthless. And yeah, yeah. there was a lot of adjustment on that stuff yeah. as well. It must have been nice though to be able to find out that stuff oh, of beforehand yeah, instead no. of afterwards. Right? Yeah. It's, I guess the thing is like, the thing that always is frustrating is when people are super hostile about it. And it's like. Hostile about what? Just like, you know, they're like super negative. Like, I can't believe oh, that you build this class this way. Or like, I can't believe that. The... Yeah, yeah. It's like. Yeah. Okay, you're in a beta. You understand that I want to get your feedback, yeah. but like, just tell me the issue. Yes, <laughs> and you can be passionate about it. But yeah. like, I mean, this is I, I am. This is the process. This is literally, this is, what we're doing. We're listening yeah, to you. Yeah, we about right. Like, we don't know, <laughs> and maybe there's an oversight here. Maybe maybe we've miscommunicated, and mm-hmm. you're misunderstanding it. Maybe we like whatever. Maybe it's just a bug. Right. Like, just please chill out. Like, be passionate. Give us your feedback. Yeah. But please do it in good faith. Like we're right, right, <laughs> we're, yeah. we're trying to do everything in good faith as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, did so yeah. you? Did you? Um, was there a moment when like that's a weird way to put this, but like uh, like once they got it, was there a period where they had to like we're waiting to see if they if you guys were really going to start responding to like the things they said, and then like did that build up some trust or like was there? Yeah, I mean, there's always like there's always really I don't know if it's unique to RPG. No, I don't think it is, but um, I think it's unique to any game community that's super passionate. There's always this sense of like, how can they possibly be shipping this in two months? Or, <laughs> which they're still doing on Deadfire. They're like, how could they possibly even fix these problems that they have remaining? It's yeah, like, yeah. Like, actually, the things that you're pointing out are things that are not that hard to fix. Um, so you'd like to think that they give you, <laughs> that they have faith in you. Um, and I would say that most players do. They're either silent. Sometimes they do say, like, yeah. But then there are always people that are like, you know, you're incompetent. And, you know, you change things every patch and it just gets worse. And, um, you know, I'm sure you see that in RTS stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And uh, yeah, but no, similar and, communities, yeah. And, and we and we try to we try to um, you know we try to iterate very quickly. But there are also like there's a trade off between time we spend prepping that build is taken away from prepping the game, um, and if we iterate too fast, there's not enough. There are certain changes that you make that people, especially I think yeah, this is definitely a place where RPG and RTS players are similar where they see a change on paper, right? And they're like, that's awful, and yes. you're like, just can you please play with it? Right. No, because it sucks, and you're like. and like maybe it does suck but like don't like you can judge it but then also please play it and give your feedback for how it really feels in play over time well also for i mean this is maybe even more true for us but like for strategy games when you change something uh, like this is actually one of sid's rules is like if you change something don't do like 10 percent. like double Double it and have it yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) and so i think that's probably like maybe harder to do in other genres but in like strategy games yeah you want to like like I, I, we made a change like I want to see what happens I have no idea like this, I'm not trying to think this is final I'm curious to see what happens so I can find out more I'm yes. learning we're learning we're the developers we're learning from you right yeah and I, I took the I took the the Sid philosophy with um with that like so recently people were talking about Cypher as one of our classes they yeah. have focus gain and there were a number of things that change mechanically that intersect with focus gain and it just seemed like, God, like it takes forever for me to get focused. And like, I wound up not being able to cast that many spells. And so we doubled the focus gain. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, we doubled the focus gain. And people are like, oh my God, you're shipping in two months and you're doubling the focus gain? Like, like you can't possibly be ready to ship. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty basic course tuning knob. Like, yeah, right. like is it still too little? Then yeah. go a little more. Or like, is yeah, it yeah. past it? Then go a little down. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, do, do, the, do the big adjustments. 
and then you can fine tune. Yeah. But so yeah, like some people get it. Um, some people have faith. Some people, you know, and it's it's born out of a, a place of passion. Like they just they want it to be great, and they they have anxiety that like you know. But there are certain things too where I feel like. Um, again, because there's so much data and so many systems and RPGs and RTSs, it's like you got to accept that there's going to be tuning post-launch. Like, yeah. no matter how much we beta test it, and no matter how much, no matter how much we test it internally, once the real game goes out there yeah. and people start going nuts with it, they're going to find exploits we never saw. They're going to find imbalances we never saw, or were understated. And we're going to have to go through and massage. And it's 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 interesting because I think that. Um, People are kind of two minds with with uh, pillars, where some people say like, "Man, this is one of the most well balanced RPGs that I've played." Which you know, a lot of RPGs just by their nature are impossible to balance. Yeah. But they're like, "Of you know, of class based RPGs, this is one of the most well balanced I've played." But then other people say like, "Man, they they patched that game forever." Like, isn't as a negative? They're like, "Oh, they were patching forever and ever and ever and ever." And it's like, well, yes, but we we're trying to not just fix bugs, but also tune yeah. and adjust and like listen to feedback where people said this is awful and say okay let's take the awful thing and make it better right. um and so it's kind of weird like i think people want you know they want the game to be perfect when it comes out um and they you know they they see patching as like a negative but again the, i i feel like there's a certain amount of trade-off that that the hardcore gamer should accept for the price of the incredible build diversity that we give to you is a lack of precision yeah, <laughs> about yeah, the balance yeah. at the time of launch. Like we will do our best and we will give it a very sober try yeah. and we will listen to you as much as we can, but then we're going to have to keep adjusting it afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So that's the only way it's going to get into that. Uh, nice I think zone. there is an interesting difference here because I think strategy gamers, like they expect the balance to change. Like that's like you know yeah like they like that you know yeah. like an update comes and they're like oh great like opening a box of like you know candy or something like well let's see what what's 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 going on inside here where like it seems like with an RPG there's like at least this aspiration that like we want the finished product right like the final yeah. thing yeah it's it's like, a, it's a sense of and maybe it's because RTSs are more inherently um, well it also gets into another really interesting place which is uh, there are people who will insist to me and I will argue ad nauseum about this but like they'll say like. Balance isn't important in a single player game. I'm like, that is not true. <laughs> like, I can understand that there's not there's not quite the emphasis when it's not multiplayer, it's not competitive, yeah. but it's still important. Um, and so that's another reason why like people kind of get worked up about like, like I'll see people say, like, you patched all this stuff, like now I, I have to relearn how to play the entire game, sure. which is not true. <laughs> it's sort of hyperbole. But also it's like, well, but in most cases, what we're doing is making bad things better. Right. Not and yeah, the outliers, the, the crazy outliers, the extremely tall blades of grass, those gotta get cut, sorry. Um, but there are people that get really and they're like, why are you why are you even doing this? Single player balance doesn't matter. And it's like, look, people said this class was awful. Right. And we just keep doing this yep, until yep, yep. they're enjoy right. it. And they're like, well, now I don't even know how to play it. I'm like, well, you can play it as a good class now. <laughs> like you will yeah. use abilities that you didn't use. And I mean, we put it in respect so that if you need to rebuild your character, you can rebuild your character. It's yep. okay. Yep. But yeah, I do think there's a difference of expectation because when it's competitive, it's people are like, it is very important for this to continually be rebalanced. Right. Um, whereas when it's a single player, there's the sense of like, I found this exploit or I found this like crazy combo and I don't like the possibility that, you know, the tall blades of grass are going to get cut. Right. Right. And if a bunch of like weak stuff gets buffed, 
but that's not how I built my character. Even though I can respec, I get annoyed because like, well, if I'd known that this was going to be good, like whatever. So it's it's a slight difference of expectation, but I, I would rather I would rather accept the criticism of that and make the game better over time. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. Um, I've got a question about kind of like um, how you teach how you teach players to play an RPG. Well, two questions about that and yeah, about it's hard. and about difficulty. They both kind of feed into <laughs> the same thing. Because the thing that stands out for me the most of like going through pillars was like the final battle. Yeah, um, because. Um, for me, at least, there was a pretty big, it was a big spike. Big spike, right? Uh, enough of a spike that I basically had to be like, you know, I pounded, I, you know, I ran my head against the wall like ten times. So I'm like, something is, something is just wrong. Like, I feel like suddenly I'm playing a different game. Yeah. Right. And so I had to go online and like actually read up about the fight and like, you know, I basically started learning all these things about the game that I never, I didn't know were in there. Yeah. I mean, I knew that like, okay, I see it says, you know, I see there's something with like slashing and piercing and blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Like it's in there, but it's never, the game's never forced me to prove that I know that, Yeah. right? Yeah. And so like, and then once I kind of like reconfigured all that stuff, then the battle, it wasn't actually easy, but like it was Big drop huge, huge yeah. difference. I think I beat it my first time basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like, well, that's weird. Like, was I just done? I did I just play through all the pillars, but I didn't ever actually learn the game. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't really necessarily have a question, but like I just wanted to It's it's a real challenge. Um I mean there are certain things that I did on pillars very intentionally to make things soft gate more. Mm-hmm. Um when the game launched, I don't think there were any immunities in the game. There were no damage type immunities. Okay. There were no um there were no affliction immunities or anything like that. So every creature would would still get damaged by everything to every, some extent. Yeah, like it, they would re, they would resist, resist it, but they couldn't just you know they weren't immune to it. Um, and so that meant that with enough kind of pushing, mm-hmm. you could kind of dump anything on anything, and it would eventually die. Um, and really, until the end of the game, where you have this very locked arena sort of environment. Um, you, I mean, like the dragon fights are, are also like that. I don't know sure. if you did any of the dragon yeah. fights, but um, they can also be ones where it's like if you don't out HPS and DPS mm-hmm. these guys, you will die. Yeah, and so really, you have to suddenly gear like these things were previously you're kind of it's a very muddy area, mm-hmm. like there aren't you know, like I used fire and like, no, it's immune. You can't use that, you have to use something else. Or like, I use paralyze, no, it's immune to paralyze, you have to use something else. One, there wasn't great feedback. Two, those systems weren't hard counter sort of things like, oh, this is just, it blocks this. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of mushy, like, I just kind of, I, I, I hit things until they die. <laughs> As my guys get red, I dump healing on them until they get better. Um, and so then when you're in this like locked arenas, it becomes like, how efficient are you? And suddenly it's, an, it's really an efficiency test. And those things that are, are hard counters that are available to you, like the immunities that you don't really have to use throughout the rest of the game, become vital because right. you will just go down and die before you can actually do enough DPS to take the enemy out. Right. Um, here are the other challenges though. There are a lot of systems and subsystems mm-hmm. and there's a big push toward freedom of exploration, mm-hmm. even early on. Um, Freedom, knows, knows, freedom of exploration mean of all those like the skills and stats of, of, or of all the, the area world, of the world of the world right. of the content okay it is really hard to tutorialize 
as many systems as RPGs have in a way that like is paced very well to introduce those things mm -hmm. if you can't reliably predict the content that the player is going to encounter. Right. Because like, you know, ideally like let's, uh, you know, I, I like to look back at a game like Ninja Gaiden, um, the, the Xbox Ninja Gaiden. It does a lot of very good slow introduction of mechanics, including for example, um, counters. Uh -huh. It, it basically exposes you to enemies that if you, it, it's like block, you better block. You better basically sit on block until you get an opening. Yeah. Um, if you don't, you're just gonna die. And like, you will die no matter what. These guys will attack you super fast, but they don't break blocks. Right. None of them break blocks. Then you encounter guys that attack so fast that you never get an opening. Mm -hmm. And it's right after you get a scroll that teaches you a counter. Right. And so you're like, okay. <laughs> then you encounter guys that break you out of block uh -huh. after you learn another tool. But each thing is like, you know exactly what enemy you're going to encounter. Yeah. They're tailor-made to work a very specific way. They're very visceral, like their move sets are very controlled. That's not like how RPG enemies typically are designed. Mm -hmm. And it's not how RPG worlds are designed. Yes. So once characters start, like, I'm gonna go over here. And you're like, I, you're fighting a fire elemental. So I guess now you're gonna learn about, um, now you're going to learn about fire immunity if you're playing a character mm -hmm. that uses fire damage. Right. Yep. Which you might not be. Yep. Like you're not Ryo Hayabusa, who is like this singular ninja character using these abilities that are tailor-made for this game. You are one of myriad characters. And maybe due to your build or this or that, like the thing that we might want to tutorialize here is not actually an issue for you because you're doing something completely different. And what it becomes is just tutorials that kind of come in at you whenever you kind of come up against the thing. And it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, because it requires the player to retain a lot mm -hmm. um, in a very short period of time, maybe, depending on how they go through the content. And uh, it's difficult. I do think that one of the, one of the sort of bugbears of this, the D&D style of game is that there are so many subsystems that interact in so many ways. Mm -hmm. it's, and it's so hard for people to keep track of things. It's very difficult to really design whether it's rock, paper, scissors encounters or whatever, um, and still allow the freedom that you want. Uh, a lot of people talk about the mage battles in BG2 as like a really high point of those games, mm -hmm. but they do become rock, paper, scissors battles. Like if you don't have a wizard, yeah. you will die. <laughs> like there is no way through this and you must have. And so some people really like that, but it does mean like your party composition really has to be built a certain way, right. um, which is counter to the desire to let the player play yeah, with as many not, characters as they want whatever class. For a, a game like this, right? So it's um well I mean like like I said, like with BG2, like people really enjoyed it, but it did mean like a, a party without a wizard is very it's very, very hard to make that viable in some of the harder fights. Right. Um so it's a great challenge. It's a great challenge. I think that reducing the number of subsystems and collapsing some of those layers would probably be uh, a good step toward um or having uh, a game where the content is so well tailored, you know, even if it's allowing exploration, it's so well tailored around this opening areas that um, you can guarantee a certain pace of, of thing. But the thing is people get real agitated um, in an, uh, an open game of any sort, the longer you keep them constrained yeah. within a small area. Well, it's, it's not just that. I mean, it's, it's one of these questions like I'm asking mm -hmm. where I'm not sure there's really a solution because like, even if like I, learned how to like okay 
it's very important that I figure out all the different immunities or I figure out all the different, like, you know, when I should be using Pierce and when I should be using Slash and when I should be like doing, you know, these type of uh, uh, damage types or whatnot. Like, I, it, it's not really a type of game where every battle should be that exhausting. Right. Yeah, and I mean, well, and that's another thing too is I think that you know Pillars One was really I think rightly criticized for having lots of trash fights mm-hmm. um, that didn't have a lot of variety. And in Deadfire, we were really like step back, right? Just because there's an empty room, Doesn't you don't have to put a fight in it. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and we actually in Deadfire, um, I think we've done a much much better job about you know we'll look at what the designer is planning on putting in, and we're like these two fights, the composition you're describing sounds very similar. And there's nothing environmentally that's really different about them. Just pulling them out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, and I think, and I do think that the like lack of consequence. Here's the other thing. This is this is really hard because this is something we really struggle with when it comes to like resting systems. Okay. Um. You know, D and D, you like rest at an inn, or you camp in the wilderness, and you get a bunch of resources back, and your injuries go away, and all this other stuff. That sort of loot, like. There's a kind of idea of risk of reward when unless you, if it's random, it's either something that's exploitable to save scumming or it's predetermined, uh-huh. which are, you know, two different problems. problems yeah. um, if you're in a tabletop game, it's a different experience because you're just playing through. Um, if it's not something where there's a chance of like an encounter, then what are you, are you using a resource? If so, how, when, um, then you look at the nature of exploration and questing within these games. Some quests take place within a city where you're just walking around you walk by a bunch of inns along the way. You could rest as many times as you want. Others are in dungeons where you're not allowed to rest or again, there's a chance of encounter or it's very far away from an inn. And the games that really try to make that loop of rest and replenishment work, Mm -hmm. they design all of their spaces and all of their like, basically like their dungeons, their cities, all that stuff is really geared around supporting that. Mm -hmm. But there's still this vibe of like, you rest in D&D, you rest at inns in D&D. And it's like, well, you do that, but also in all these games, we allow you to go into a dungeon for a little bit mm-hmm. and then turn around and leave. Yeah. And go out in the wilderness where there's no boundaries and right. fight some guy, sleep in a field. And these it's, it's a thing, it's an area where resting is a thing and inns are like a thing that feels so intrinsic to D&D but outside of the tabletop environment, it's a very difficult thing to make feel mechanically coherent right. with everything else. Um, because if we started pushing on our dungeons uh-huh. and pushing on our mechanics to make it like Dark Souls, for example, ooh, that doesn't feel like D&D anymore. Yeah. That doesn't feel like an Infinity Engine game anymore. And it's hard. It's very yeah. difficult to deal with. Okay, this makes me, let me ask a really high level question okay. here. Because we've talked about a bunch of things that are like problematic. Yeah. You know, like traps, you know, pre-buffs, mm-hmm. um, uh, resistances, mm-hmm. resting. Yep. Are RPGs just problematic? Like, is that just... Well, I think... Or the are, pro- is there like a, is there like a platonic RPG out there that like doesn't have all these issues? Like, what... Well, I mean, I, I think, so I think the issue is that, okay, I mean, and this is no offense to Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax. Mm-hmm. They are the the creators of this whole darn thing. Yeah. Um, but as, as the first of anything, there's a lot of stuff that kind of, it doesn't all fit together. It's like this beautiful sort of um, mess of like crazy creative ideas 
that aren't necessarily me mechanically coherent because holy crap, I mean, this is like the mid seventies. We're talking about like, this is going back so far when like, you know, from our perspective, we're like, oh, why would you do this? Or why'd you do that or whatever? When to them, their motivations and their reasons for doing it were, were not really about tight mechanical systems. I mean, even in tabletop design now, there aren't that many games that are, I'm sorry, even in tabletop role-playing games now, there aren't a ton of yeah. tabletop role-playing games that have that mechanical tightness. Um, and so, so, but what happened is we really, you know, and I'm part of, I'm to blame for this as well. Like we really just tried to take all that stuff that even in a tabletop setting arguably like has some problems and we put it into an environment that it works even less <laughs> because we have saves coming and yeah, save load yeah, and like, yeah, and, yeah. All, and, and, you know, RNG and all this other stuff um, where it's like, God, like it, arguably it didn't work super well, even in the tabletop environment with a live DM there. And now in a computer environment, it's just, that's why I say like, there's so much baggage and it's baggage of stuff that it feels right. Right. It seems right. Um, like it, it should be there, but then, and, but people rightfully say like, why is this here? You know, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. people still go like, God, like why, why are traps here? Like, why is this here? Why is that there? Um, and a lot of it just comes down to feeling, which is something that I don't think should be ignored. Uh -huh. Like it's, I think it's a, a foolish thing to ignore feeling. Um, cause that, that's really actually more important than a lot of the details in a lot of cases. Um, but uh, yeah, you're kind of like, how can we make this work? And a lot of cases, like I said, they're at odds. Um, a DM can adapt. If you say, I'm going to rest in the middle of this thing, they're like, okie doke. Right. Like I'm, I will contrive a very believable, like, you know, problem or thing here and a challenge for you to deal with. Um, when there's not a live DM to adjudicate there, that thing falls apart. Um, and then at the extreme end of the spectrum, you can look at something in the tabletop space, like Torchbearer, which mm -hmm. is made by Burning Wheel. And um, which is so mechanically tight and it's so about that grind uh -huh. that it's like paralyzing. Right. <laughs> like yeah. every action you take is taking you closer to death. So, and even going back to town is like actually in some ways riskier than staying in a dungeon. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, oh my God. So that's kind of what I'm wondering about, right? Like, because like we're, you know, we're hitting these rough edges. Yeah. Right. And we're all, we always notice them. But like, what's the main reason people are playing this game? Right, like mm -hmm. because because yeah, I I've played tabletop games or strategy games or whatever that are like super tight, right? Mm -hmm. like, like currently, like I'm playing Into the Breach, right? And that yeah. game is like super duper tight, super yeah. super tight, right? Mm -hmm. But like I think at some level, right, like that's not what RPGs are just about, right? And like you know, if if it was super tight, like the, maybe the, the scope, it just doesn't match the scope. Maybe I don't know. I, I, I think yeah, there's a this is really what it comes down to feeling. Like mm -hmm. they want, and I'm not gonna speak for every single gamer who likes RPGs, but like they want a feeling, they want it to feel right. And sometimes you can adjust and shift things around where the mechanics are not quite the same, but it still feels right. But like, again, if we, if you're like, hey, remember the Infinity Engine games? Remember how you could go in and out of dungeons kind of mm -hmm. whatever you wanted and backtrack and, and you were in a world where like, if you were in Afkatla and Baldur's Gate 2, you could just go in any direction and do a little mm -hmm. quest here or there. We're not gonna do any of that. Mm -hmm. You're gonna go into a dungeon and once you go into a dungeon, you're locked in the dungeon right. and you bring in a finite amount of supplies to rest with until they wear down and da 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 da. Like, right. no, that does, not, that does not feel the same. Like arguably there are dungeons, like, you know, whether it's Tomb of Horrors or something like that, where maybe that's kind of how you play through them, but that's not really how most D&D &D feels. 
Um, it's not how the Infinity Engine games feel. And um, my lead designer on Deadfire, Bobby Null, is a real traditional D&D guy. And he kind of says like, yeah, there's, if you, if you want to change something, like there's only so much, like that's a very traditional thing. There's only so many steps you can move away from that before, even if it is, you know, in this abstract, objectively better, right. tighter, you have lost the spirit. Yes. And players will not accept it. Yeah. Or at least the players who came to you in the first place with the excitement at, at the prospect of playing through this thing that they love, they're going to go, no, this, this, I don't like it. This feels wrong. Right. And they might not articulate it for the exact reasons, but like every little chip and nick that you take out of it. I mean, there are people that will say that Pillars of Eternity strayed way too far away from the Infinity Engine games. Right. And, you know, that's, that, that's the thing. It's like we have to find this balancing point where we can try to make it feel like a more coherent game, um, but not lose the spirit. Because if we lose the spirit, then we lose the fans. And then yeah, we're yeah. doomed. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let me. Uh, one other thing. So the 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 way experience worked in Pillars was was pretty interesting. Um, it was because it was basically there's a finite pool of experience points, right? Yeah. Um, there's another thing where people really don't like. <laughs> yeah. So that because I mean that's that I mean the Infinity Engine games do not work like that, right? No, it's just you kill things and you get XP. Would although I'm thinking, I mean, uh, well, right, but um, I mean in Baldur's Gate you could just keep hitting random encounters, right? So yeah. you, you could grind. Did Icewind Dale have that? Because that was more of like you're progressing through the game. Like Yeah, there yeah, there wasn't um yeah, you couldn't really grind in um Yeah, you couldn't really grind so in uh, in Icewind Dale. So it basically much. had a finite pool too. Yeah, but it was also linear, so we we like knew like okay. where you're gonna hit everything. Right. But that actually makes a huge difference. That meant that yeah. in Icewind Dale you knew essentially where the characters would be by the time they got to a certain thing. Yeah, like when you hit this part of Darn's Deep, you're probably going to be this level or very, very close to it. Right. That actually seems like a huge difference between like the, the how those games are going to feel. Right? Yep. So is that... So, <laughs> all right. So is that kind of your philosophy? Like how you prefer doing it? Because you... I don't know. It's, it's weird. Like, um, I mean, I prefer games where... I like being able to wander into danger. I like... Uh-huh. I don't like level scaling really in either direction um i mean but there are some players that that do like it they really enjoy it um and they prefer it um and so i like games where you can kind of poke your head into an area that's insanely hard and like either be very crafty and careful and get through it um or just get murdered and then you're like come back later Mm -hmm. um and I, I try to put this sort of stuff in a lot of the games that I work on, but um, and people respond to it differently each time. Right. Um, sometimes they get really excited about it, sometimes they just really can't stand it. Um, but yeah, like I, I like the idea. Well, I guess the other thing too is that I feel, and this is maybe a little too idealistic, but like I feel like um, if a player doesn't like a certain activity, right. I think they should stop doing it. <laughs> And grinding is one of those things where I feel like, um, especially when it's grinding low-level stuff, I'm like, if if we design the game in such a way where grinding is more or less required, right. and it really does feel like grinding, like this is generic murder content, um, I feel like the players, I would, what I would rather do is eliminate grinding and say this is not a tool mm-hmm. for getting through difficult things, but that we have to always provide other 
bespoke content, mm-hmm. which is a much more challenging thing to do. It's much more challenging to keep, you know, at any level, what are all the quests that I can do? Right. Oh, there's always something for me to do. I would rather say like, go to this dungeon that you haven't done that might be small and that will get you with XP in the custom content that we've made for that. Um, but this was like an optional dungeon. Yeah, it's an optional dungeon. Like I would rather make a big old world full of optional stuff yep. and potentially let the character get crazy over leveled and just mash the crap out of everything. That's fine. Yeah. But I do think when it gets down to like just churning on like making stuff that you can just murder slowly to build up your level. Yeah. That's like the least interesting content we could possibly make. And so I prefer to to eliminate it entirely so that we are forced to make more interesting content for the player. Like one of the things we do is we have we have bounties in Pillars 1 and Deadfire. Uh-huh. And those are kind of like grinding, but they're all unique encounters with crazy dudes that are high level and like a really weird combination of people. Um, and they're little things you can do to get money and XP and they're really contained and they're very compact. Um, those, and we have a lot of them. And uh, I would much rather make a bunch of those than say like, there's an area on the map where you can go to and rest and just spam and a bunch of ogres will pop up and they're all ogres and you kill them and you can do that forever. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the, only thing, and the only thing really positive to say about grinding is it does, it's basically a sort of a way for the player to adapt the difficulty on the fly. Um, and uh, you know, optional content, I guess, obviously can do that just as well, yeah. but in a, you know, a more positive way. Um, okay. Um, I mean, it's always, I mean, I think I would all be, I, I would, if I was ever trying to design an RPG thing, I'd be afraid of is like just the general sense of like, how do you, you know, you're going to know what the game feels like early on the first couple hours, because that's the one that's always easiest to test. But like, how do you have any sense of like how easy or hard it's going to be to a player like 40 hours down the road when they're like, they've made so many decisions about their characters and they've ended up in so many different places. Like, that yeah, crazy. it's yeah. The boundaries are are, are difficult. Um, I think over you know eighteen years of making RPGs, I've developed something of just of a sense of it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I always play everything on our equivalent of hard. Okay. Um, I don't play the highest level of difficulty because, frankly, I don't care a whole lot about the balance up there. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I I would I would as long as it's sort of like erring on the side of too difficult. Yes. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um. Because the number of players who are going to play it is going to be very small. And uh, I play things on hard. And if things start to feel like pretty hard to me on hard, I feel that on lower levels of difficulty, it's probably actually still going to probably be too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just do a lot of talking to, I look at the encounters. There's a lot of, I don't know, it's weird. Like there is a sort of sense to it. Like I remember when I was DMing a ton, um, I could kind of just like uh, like D and D third edition has this all these formulae for like bringing to, like a challenge rating of an encounter, and like this is how you calculate it. And I had played so much D and D that I would kind of just like throw things together, and I'm like, this is about right. Yep. And sure enough, man, my players would play through it, and I was usually pretty close to the expectation of how hard it would be, and I, you know, didn't really fudge. Um, it was like if people got killed, they got killed. Um, but after I stopped doing that and I came back to it after years, I was like, holy crap, I have no idea how to estimate any of this. Yep. And I just feel like <clears throat> with Pillars, I try to play through the content quite a bit and um, with different character types and different party compositions. And usually what I find is like, once I find like a good median level of like, these character classes through these levels feel pretty solid. If I'm playing on a couple of different levels of difficulty and I feel like this big drop mm-hmm. or spike in difficulty, 
I look at what sort of like changed in the composition of a party or gear or things like that. And then I sort of go like, oh crap, like the monk is really actually feeling really weak or like, right. oh my God, if you play this with a berserker, it's like it's so easy, you just practically walk through it. And so instead of tuning the content, I'm like finding these outliers and I'm trying to kind of balance those things down. Right. Um, but it's it's a big soup of stuff. And I think part I think part of the um, I don't know, I think part of the appeal of RPGs, uh, even if you have level scaling or whatever, is that there is this kind of a roller coaster of like RPGs are full of things. Yeah. Like you're not fighting ten different enemies, you're fighting dozens of different types of enemies. And right. like there are hundreds of powers and like so many weapons and just all this crazy stuff. And uh, the best that I can try to do is I try to normalize these things that even in in like D&D are very variable, like damage ranges. I'm like, is it a one-handed fast weapon? They all do the same base damage. Yeah. <laughs> is it a two-handed weapon? They all do the same base damage. Yeah. I try to normalize that stuff and then have like more distinctive little properties on each of them. Or yeah. like with armor, it's just like, here's the range. It's a trade-off of protection versus speed. Right. It's very, it's very linear. And, you know, and it's it's a sort of predictable range of, of stuff that's going to output from it. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a big old soup of stuff. And yeah. that's part of the reason why people enjoy it. Yeah. Now, you have a very distinct, however, you have a very distinct philosophy of what you want to do different with attributes with pillars compared to, like, the Infinity Engine stuff, right? Yes. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, I really, what I looked at is I, I, I fundamentally believe that attribute systems and class systems are in conflict, especially the more classes you have and the more attributes you have and the mm. more things they influence, the more they're in conflict. There is a fundamental statement of what is a class? What is a class? It's um, it's a, a concept that revolves around what you're good at. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. that's really a way to look at it. Or, um, and including the things that you're maybe not good at. Uh, attributes, what are they? Uh, it's a list of things that define out what you're good, you're good at. at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. okay. And so I'm like, well, these things are sort of conceptually in conflict. So how do we how do we design something that has these attributes that are kind of just finding what you're good at and uh, the abilities that define what you're good at without them overlapping, conflicting in, in weird ways? And really what I was trying to do is I was first and foremost trying to avoid uh, bad builds, ones where you're like, I have a really cool idea for a character, and that character is mechanically just awful. Right. So, which meant that I wanted attributes to affect things that, if they weren't of equal value to every class, were of value to every class, some value to it's every like class. Yeah. Um, which is actually pretty hard with six attributes and 11 sure. classes. Yep. Um, yep. And then on the other side, I wanted to make dumping a stat uh, always have some penalty that was appreciated by every class. Right. Um, and uh, I actually started Pillars of Eternity with four stats, four okay. attributes, sorry. And people were really mad about it because mm. it's not six. Because <laughs> it's not six. <laughs> yeah, and six, then, six is one of those numbers, yeah. And then I had five uh -huh. and people were still mad <laughs> because five is not six. And I'm like, okay, I really don't, I think I'm going to really be challenged to make all this stuff work with six attributes. Um, but I did, I made six attributes and there's still weaknesses within that system, but it really... The focus was like, I I have seen too many players, including actually very experienced RPG designers, <laughs> play D and D, which is a game full of traps. Yeah. It is a game full of trap choices, um, and make a high charisma fighter mm. that is bad at being a fighter and is also bad at talking because fighters get few skill points yeah. and they don't have any skill points in diplomacy or and diplomacy and bluff 
in third edition are not class skills for them. And so unless you are very crafty with the system, which the people that made that choice in the first place probably aren't, you are going to play a bad fighter who is also not good at talking. Right. And you, in your mind, are like, I'm going to make a fighter who's good at fighting, who has a high charisma because he's good at talking. Right. And I'm like, that's not great. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is good. Um, and I also really like, I, I feel I feel like a mandatory choice is not a choice. Mm-hmm. If if a fighter is worthless unless they max strength, why is that a choice? Yes. <laughs> like um, if a, if a wizard is worthless unless they max int, why is that really a choice? Why not just preset it or peg it and then give points to put in other stuff or whatever? Like don't don't do that though. Don't say like, well, you technically could make a fighter that has an average strength or a low strength, but you're functionally awful at doing your job. Right. Um, which, which sort of meant that the nature of things that were affected had to change and the scope of impact of each point had to change, which a lot of people complained about. They said, man, like a point of strength feels so much less impact, or a point of might feels so much less impactful in Pillars of Eternity than it does in D&D, which is true. It is. It's mathematically true. Like, right. but, um, but that is, uh, again, a sacrifice that I made to mean that if you, if you didn't overinvest in strength or in right. might, it was fine. Yeah. Like, your fighter's still pretty good at fighting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's a lot more, theoretically, I guess there's a lot more ways to build a fighter now. There are a lot more ways to build a fighter. I mean, you will find the people who are the ultra-optimizers sure. who will say that this is the ideal, and it's like, that's fine. But really, for me, uh, there is a gulf between viable and optimal, mm-hmm. and I want to raise the floor on viable characters. Yes. That's it. And like, and I'll always find people who say, like, oh, but this class, and this class combination, or if you bump this, like, they're really not as good as... And like, that's fine. The point is not that they're ideal. The point is that if you made that character and you think they're cool, you're going to be able to get through the game. Right. And you're probably not going to get through the game on Path of the Damned, but if you're playing on Path of the Damned, you're probably doing all this crazy optimization anyway. Yeah. So I'm not worried about those players. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that was really my goal. And I think for the most part, we got there. There were certain attributes and combinations that didn't really work out as well as I want. I'm trying to re- rectify that stuff in Deadfire. People are getting really mad about that. Yeah. Like, why are you messing around with this stuff? I'm like, because we did not accomplish the goal yeah. that I set out to accomplish, and I think it's worth accomplishing. For me, I think it was, it was kind of funny because I felt like um, the I like I like the concept, the base. I like the basic way it worked. You know, like oh great, so it might actually mean something for my wizard wizard yeah. now. Yeah, you know, like it's the how powerful the spell is. I'm like, okay, that that works. You know, but like it, it always came down to like. I'm so ingrained to think of like strength, dexterity, intelligence, you know, wisdom, charisma, et cetera, um, that there were too many new words in the system, mm-hmm. right? Like, because I had to learn the new six ones, but yeah. then there's other ones too, right? Yeah. They, they lead into these other secondary attributes, which yeah. is like, there was like no way I was going to learn those when I like, I still didn't know the other ones. And it's like, that's not really a criticism, but like, it just, it, it it's difficult because it's, it's, yeah, I was like, well, we, I named it might so that people would take a second look at it. Yeah. They're like, well, these other things are named pretty much the same, but like resolve is not charisma yes, and might is not strength. And like, what does that really mean? Right. But it did mean people had to learn new things. Um, and some people just fundamentally don't like it. But I also did try to make it so that if you kind of just looked at the order of things and kind of just yeah. did what you did in D&D, yeah, 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 that yeah. the character would probably be fine. Yeah. So, like, if you make a wizard and you max int, the durations of your spells are super long and your AoEs are huge. If you make a fighter and you max con and strength, you will be very tough and you will do a lot of damage. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. 
So if you do the if you do the typical things that you sort of expect from a D and D thing, like it's probably it might it might not do exactly what you think, but the character will probably be good in the way that you kind of expect. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, like wizards have long big spells, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then if you start doing things that are sort of atypical, like a lot of people like the high intellect barbarian. Um, because the AOE of their carnage attacks mm. gets really big and the duration of their frenzy gets longer. Um, so that's like an atypical thing you can do, but that's like a cool character. Like the smart barbarian is not a good character in D&D typically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why did you want to make a game about, I mean, were you, did you write the story or the, the outline for the story or whatever? Um, the only thing I wrote about, uh, the only thing that I said is that you, be, the way that the game started, uh-huh. And the sort of like impending madness being the sort of danger that was pushing you to like resolve the the problem that you had. Okay. But like most of the rest of the story was, um, most of the rest of it was Eric Fenstermaker developing okay. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we don't need to do that too yeah. much. So. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so but I did design most of the story for, for Deadfire. Okay. Um, okay. Well, uh, I guess, did you, re- did you do the similar role in Tyranny? Um, were you involved with that a lot? Or no, yeah. I mean, I was. I I be I became the design director for the studio at the tail end of Tyranny, and I gave feedback on it, but it was really late in development. So, yeah, I wasn't super heavily involved in in. Uh, you mean you became a design director at the tail end of Pillars? At, at the tail end of Tyranny. Okay, but the you, design director of the studio, the whole studio. Okay. Yes. Okay, so, but so you weren't doing like redesign work on Tyranny. I didn't do any design work. On oh, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Simple yeah. answer then. Okay. All right. Well, then I guess we need, maybe we just start talking about Deadfire then. Some. Sure. Um, all right. So, what did you want to accomplish with Deadfire? Like, um, it was a couple things. One was uh, obviously refine the stuff that we had done in the first game. I didn't want to change anything really radically. But the other thing we started thinking about is like you know we've we've been fairly conservative with expanding the stuff in the sort of game. So we're like, what are things that we could do that weren't in the Infinity Engine games that we probably could never have done in the Infinity Engine games, but would be really cool? Right. And so we're like, what about an, uh, an Orwellian map? It's more like Fallout. Uh-huh. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the Infinity Engine games didn't do that. Yeah. I was like, that feels cool. And then we're like, we talked about regions and one of and we said like, let's, let's go to an area that's less traditional fantasy. Uh-huh. Um, and so we talked about different places that were kind of hinted at or talked about in Pillars 1. And Deadfire was what one. What does less traditional fantasy mean? Like, uh, not Western European. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, simple enough. Yeah. Um, because I mean, that's the thing. It's like the Deerwood feels like Western Europe yeah. or England, maybe. Yeah. Um, and so we uh, we talked about a lot of different areas, and one of the ones that came up a lot was Deadfire, mm-hmm. um, because it was an archipelago, because it was subtropical and tropical, um, because the dominant race there was not humans. Um, because the dominant human race there were ocean folk, who mm-hmm. are the black people of Pillars of Eternity. Right. So it was it was different in a lot of different ways. And it was also mostly water. And so we're like, well, that'd be a really cool thing to like sail around. And instead of a, although we came to this decision later on, like instead of a stronghold, you have a ship and your ship is your new focus that you go around on. Right. And um, so like these all seem like cool things that don't seem bad for a game of this sort. They feel like cool changes and additions on top of everything else that we're doing. Right. Um, also, I really wanted to focus on combat pacing and clarity, okay. which is why we went from six characters on five characters. Okay. Um, it's why we put a lot huh. of effort into like combat pace. Uh, we slowed down combat overall. We also now have an uh, integral 
uh, combat speed slider in the HUD, so you can just slow it down and speed it up whenever huh. you want. Okay. Um, also, when you pause the game now, all the visual effects dim, oh, so you okay. can see what the hell is going on. Okay. To see that being useful. Um, and then there were a lot of other things like you know we we went through like the priest and the druid spell list, and we thinned them to make their spell choices feel a lot more impactful. There was a lot less redundant or like mandatory mandatory buffs or counters or things like that. Uh, we tried to simplify and condense our affliction and inspiration list because we had like 29 afflictions in the first game and it was impossible to keep track of them all. It was impossible to know how to counter them. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> yeah, a lot of it was like, I, I wanted to, if anything, make the tactical, the tactical stuff more interesting, which might mean slightly more complicated, but like less just detritus, like kind of floating around, mm-hmm. less kind of like ephemeral stuff that was like, we don't like, we can make this clearer um, while making it tactically more interesting, make this clearer and simpler. Right. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds, sounds cool. I mean, um, is... I, I will say one other big thing from a story perspective, since we, we touched on before is okay. the story hook, which is my fault in Pillars 1, was a hard one to wrap your head around because it was kind of like, you're hallucinating ghosts and things, but mm-hmm. it's in a fantasy world. Right. And it's from an isometric perspective. And so it, it didn't come across very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're also dealing with an enemy who uh, by his very nature is completely unknown and secretive. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of like out of the picture for most of the game. Right. Um, which doesn't really build up a lot of suspense yes. and whatever. So that's why for Deadfire it was like, it starts with the statue under your castle being occupied by Aethys. Okay. And he punches his way out of your castle. Okay. All right. <laughs> steals your soul and then marches across the ocean. And that's that's like a known thing. So no spoilers. There. Sure. Right. Um, but it's like very clear <laughs> death yep. and death and destruction. And it's a 700 foot tall stone man walking around in an archipelago. Right. So right. people know he exists. People are talking about him. People are like you literally and in, in, you go to a level where you're like, I think Aethys came through here and there is a footprint that is the size of the screen filled, <laughs> filled with water. And people are like, yeah, I think Aethys went through here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, so it was really to, um, you know, make there be a much clearer threat um, that felt much more present in the world in the story that people were reacting to yeah. as you went through it. Well, I definitely, there were definitely times in first quarters where I was not, not totally clear what was going on. I know I was not supposed to be clear. So, you know, that's, I was, yeah. I was willing to go, I was, willing to, I was happy to go along with it. You know, it's fine. It's like, okay, it's just going to be that type of game, I guess, you know, I'll see what this is all about when we get to the end, right? Well, I guess that's the other thing too, is like the mystery is also a thing that only, only you really knew about the mystery mm-hmm. in Pillars 1. So again, um, you know. Oh, he's going to really talk to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like Theos, like who knows who the heck he is or yeah. like what he's up to. No one even knows he exists. Um, so it can't be like a topic of discussion really. I'll say right. companions. Yeah. <clears throat> Whereas in Deadfire, again, where people are like, why is Aethys doing this? Yeah, yeah, what's going on? <laughs> and so this is like a, a continual topic where we're like, where is he going? What is he doing? Like, what's all this stuff about? Um, so again, that be- it becomes a, a topic that is actually present in the world as opposed to like, well, I don't know really what's going on, but there's not even speculation about it. <clears throat> there's no one to speculate to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So what are your expectations of like how, I mean, how it's going to do or like what's, uh, how people are going to react to it? <clears throat> well, my hope Mm-hmm. is that there's a brilliant Assassin's Creed 1 to Assassin's Creed 2, or maybe a more appropriate example would be Divinity 1 to Divinity okay. 2, or something, right. where there's like, the first game was like, re- reviewed well, and was uh-huh. pretty popular for the size that it was, and then suddenly, 
you know, there's going to be this, a bunch of people who heard Pillars was cool. Sure. And now Pillars 2 comes out and it looks way better. And yeah. like, we've fixed a lot of things, hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and like, oh my God, and it sells great. I mean, I, I do believe that it can sell better than Pillars 1. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have made a much better game overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that Divinity has set a very high bar for us to hit. I mean, like, what's this Metacritic, like 94 or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah, it's incredible yeah. and it, it sold, really it sold well. amazingly well. Yeah. Um, and and I will say that, you know, Deadfire really does still feel like a more traditional RPG in a lot of ways. Really? Um, because... I mean, I don't want to make it sound like, that. that is not a knock against Divinity, but like we are definitely mired in the D&D-ness. Yes. Whereas really it feels like um, Divinity, if anything, takes more inspiration from like Ultima Mm-hmm. Um, and a okay. lot of it's like world yeah. interactions and yeah. stuff like that. But it's more it's more system driven, which yeah. I think feels fresher. Um, it's co-op oriented. It's it's uh, it's about screwing around in a lot of ways, yeah. which which pillars is really not. Yeah. Um, so I think we have a we have a, a really high both uh, target to hit in terms of exceeding uh, expectations based on the first game, but also our competitors. So yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a much better game. Uh, so I hope that people really respond well to it. And um, I mean, my goal with all of this stuff was to create an IP that we continue building on. Yeah. Um, I do think, you know, if if this were, if the second game sells well, I would hope that we could make a, you know, a, a third game in the series. But also, I would hope that we can start making other games with it. Right. I would like to make a turn-based tactics game someday. Okay. <laughs> um, that is That is much tighter. I mean, maybe it's not as tight as something like Into the Breach, but like... You know all these subsystems like we don't have to make something based on dnd like because the ip is pillars of eternity right and it can be a game that's really built around this very tight tactical combat sure. or we can make a game that's about first person open world exploration right that's pillars of eternity why not sure um so i would that was really the goal with making this whole setting in the first place sure. was not for my own sake yeah yeah, yeah. um so yeah well, and yeah when we talked about like the resist- resistances and immunities and like how do you teach that to players you know like the fact that you're interested in turn base i mean that's that's what turn base is for that's really right? more yeah, yeah or, I mean, or like, it's more for a single character game where you can very clearly communicate those things right because you have less less to worry about but, of course but, but like, like yeah i mean in turn base like you got the time it'll tell you everything you know you're about to take this action they can tell Cause you every, effect. everything yep. <laughs> that's about to happen with this action and why so yeah, I'm not surprised you're interested in turn-based. I mean, turn-based RPGs have a... There's a lot of really cool stuff you can do with them, obviously. So. Yeah, and I mean, and I really, like, I look at... Um, you can also... T- I think you can tell really cool stories in a tactical combat RPG. Like, And I'm thinking of something more like Final Fantasy Tactics, sure. where the sort of, like, free-exploring meadows and cities and stuff like that is not really what the game is about. Mm-hmm. It's about telling the story, and I think even branching and reactive stories where you're making important choices, um, you know, are built around also these... Uh, key, you know, like this world that you explore and have like these key sort of critical combats and and things like that. So it's a it's a much more focused thing. Um, but again, it, it, I, I think Pillars IP could work very well with that. Um, I think it'd be a much smaller scope game in terms of like the development required for it. Yeah. Um, and I think I think I don't think I don't think every person who plays Pillars of Eternity would want to play it. But I think there are people who who do play Pillars who would love a game like that as a contrast. Yeah. And I think there are people who whether it's you know something where it's more console friendly, or just the style of game they're more into, they're like I don't really like the real time with pause or whatever, but like they really like tactical games. They're like, oh, I heard Pillars is kind of a cool game. Never could really get into the the main game, but like this taxes thing seems cool. So again, I hope that we can you know sort of keep our audience, but also branch into other right. audiences as well. Yeah, <clears throat> um, you know, in consideration of like turn based, like what did you think of Darkest Dungeon? Darkest Dungeon feels very much. I would be amazed if they had not played 
uh, Torchbearer because the vibe of it is so very similar in, sure. in terms of that constant grinding, grinding, grinding down and retreat and like yeah. going, going mad and all that stuff. Um, I think that here's the thing that I, I feel is, is, is really, especially when you're in a computer environment mm -hmm. and this is born out by XCOM, it's born out by lots of different games yeah. that RNG as the primary determination of like efficacy is a bummer, especially when there's a, a wide swing. Yes. Um, and I think Darkest Dungeon, some people really like it, but it, it can be a big stumbling block and a frustration point for a lot of people. Um, you can do deterministic combat systems. You can also compress the range of, of randomness. Right. Um, it, you will change the feeling of things. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think that that's one where, you know, like very much like, you know, randomness is is really, you have to embrace it to enjoy it. Yeah, well, that I mean, that game is about throwing away your characters. Right? Yeah. Like, so, and that's... <laughs> It's a certain type of game, right? It is, yeah. and and I, but I think I think it makes that clear pretty early. Yeah. So it's not like a you know like oh my god, um, and yeah, and I, I would say that you know in contrast, for example, like something that um, let me bag on XCOM a little bit, like Enemy Unknown, like when a character gets wounded and comes out of a combat wounded and has to go into the base, like you almost don't want to continue. You want to go back. Yeah. There's nothing to encourage you to say like no, you you have still made like. Like, I don't know. Like, I like games, for example, where, like, when a character gets wounded and mm -hmm. let's say they have to recover. Right. When they come out of it, maybe even if they have an injury, like, maybe they have crazy will and right, combat right. cool because they, they fucking came super close to death and, like, mm -hmm. now they're a badass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, things that, because something like that where it encourages you, like, yeah, now use someone else in your roster. Yeah. Like, because, and you will be rewarded for actually keeping going instead of going back to an earlier save and trying to just play through it perfectly. Yeah. Um, so I don't know this is kind of far afield or whatever but yeah. like I, I, I think that all these turn-based games um, I really like sometimes I wonder about something like like XCOM if it were more fully deterministic like I have a sniper with a sniper rifle yeah. and I can shoot at different targets and based on the range it will do different damage if I tr or, or I can't shoot it like if I get too close you can't shoot that at that guy right. like, you just can't do it and the tactical choices are really bound up in nothing to do with randomness. They're all about like, what is the opportunity cost mm -hmm. and the efficiency with me? Like, should I move up a little bit so I can do another point of damage against this guy? Right. Um, should I wait? Should I not shoot at that guy, but shoot at this other guy who's not as high a priority, but I can probably take him out. Um, I don't yeah. know. I do think a lot about whether either removing, making it more deterministic or at least compressing those, um, those ranges, the numerical ranges, could uh, make them actually more tactical right. in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, XCOM's definitely one of those games. I think that like potentially has an inheritance problem because oh, it definitely does. Because like it, um, and now it was come back to your talk. Yeah, yeah, right. There you go. Keep circling. Well, it has such a. It, it was heralded as such a classic right away. Right, and so that meant a few. You know, there were these few things that were just kind of like taken for granted, like that. You know, you know, RNG is going to be a major part of the game, and also permadeath is going to be a major part of the game, right? Yeah. Like, and so it's just hard to. They're in a kind of a box where it's, it's really hard to like figure out if there are other, you know, if there are better versions of the game out there that somehow don't have those things, you know, or if like you were talking about, you know, uh, the designer you were talking about earlier says like you can only change so much. Before, before it starts to feel different. It's just, you know, yeah. this is just a different game. This isn't XCOM anymore, so. And I do think, you know, I, and that's another thing where I, re I, <clears throat> I think that, you know, in some ways I envy um, Larian. I mean, I said we're making an Infinity Engine successor. That's yep. why people backed yep. it. And yep. so, of yep. course, they have that expectation. Yep. Um, I think that 
Uh, obviously, Larian's audience has their own expectations, but they they're not quite as bound up in the sort of stuff that that we bound ourselves up in. Uh, but yeah, X, XCOM is definitely bound up in it. I'll be interested to see, for example, so Phantom Doctrine is. Have you seen any of that? Uh, no. It's, it's by the guys who made uh, Hard West. Okay. And um, it's uh, it's a it has an XCOM vibe. It's turn based, and you're moving little units around. But it's it's uh, Cold War. Actually, yeah, it's like late Cold War espionage. I okay. want to say it's early '80s. I might be wrong on that, but but it's it is like XCOM. But from talking to developers and looking at some of the stuff they're doing, they are trying to move away from the big swingy stuff yep. and um, encouraging different styles of play and stuff like that. So again, like someone who does something parallel that's not quite the same, it's yep. stylistically the same. They can maybe make some of the bigger changes that aren't going to make anyone mad because it's it's its own thing, even though it has a similarity that's appreciated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, XCOM has been successful enough that now there's, you know, there will be XCOM-likes, right? Probably, that can, that yeah. can start <laughs> I mean, in some way, you can look at Darkest Dungeon as it's XCOM you can't lose. Sure. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and because it's, like, really, like, losing in XCOM is kind of really problematic because it's just, like, it's such a long game. And, again, yes. that's the issue is, like, how do, you, how do you know where the player is 20, 30 hours into it? And, like, you know, it's... You don't really want the player to lose a giant campaign, but no. you have to have that as a real option. That's an option, yeah. So, yeah, it's, <clears throat> it's tough. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. All right, well, I think we've made, you know, made it through made it through your whole career. Awesome. I like to ask. <laughs> I like to ask at the end. You know, so you know, looking back, like at, at everything, you know, why have you made video games your life's work? Um, I can't not think about this stuff. All right. And I can't not work on it. And it doesn't matter if I do it professionally or not. I wouldn't be able to stop. Right. That's okay. it. <laughs> I, mean, that's a, I mean, I'm sure that's exactly true. But, like, can you can you get into, like, why that matters? Like, why you can't? I mean, why can't you not stop? Like, what what, what hooked you so that, like, that, you, that you know, like, lots of people play D&D, &D, D &D, sure. but they didn't end up doing what you're doing, right? Well, I guess the thing is, like, before I was a professional game designer, I was hacking apart AD&D. &D. Yeah, I was, sure. I was changing rules. I would take board games and I would change the rules. And I... But why did you want to do that? Like... It just felt like it... Like I said, you can put any system in front of me and I will start, including my own, and I will start to criticize it. Yeah. It's just an instinct that I have. Yeah. And... Um, and it's something I've had since I was relatively young yeah. and, uh, you know, way before I was professional at it. And it was just the sort of thing where it feels like, um, and, it, and now it's extends to everything where I look at everything as a design. And it, I guess it's expanded beyond games too. Like I look at everything as a design challenge. Yeah. And, um, I like learning about things so I can understand all of the needs and constraints that go into how they're made. Um, right. I love bicycles. I, I took a course in Portland to learn how to braise my own bicycle frame. And I did it. And I was like, oh, wow, this is why these things are done the way that they're done. And these are why these tube buddings are chosen. And these are the trade-offs you make. And, mm -hmm. and now when I look at games or I look at, and I think this is something a lot of developers do, um, but I feel like I kind of do, if not compulsively, I just feel a drive to do it is when I look at a game and I see something and I go like, why did they do that? That's, that's a real question and not a rhetorical one. Yes. And I start going like, Okay, and then I start thinking like, are, is there another way that this could have been done mm -hmm. that maybe would have gotten either a, to a different goal or the same goal, but in a better way while accomplishing another goal? And um, and yeah, I mean, like I 
I play tabletop role playing games. I literally sometimes I'll go to bed thinking about things and wake up thinking about them. Like yep. I just I can't stop doing it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for your time. I mean, this I think yeah, it was a lot of fun. Cool. cool.